My God, it's full of stars. Welcome to We Came From The 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies we thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron, and I'm joined remotely by Adam. Hey, everybody. My God, we're in coronavirus quarantine. Yes, we are. So this is going to be a a little different episode, not terribly so. Normally, the way we do this, of course, is everyone who's joining me would come back to my house and we'd... uh, you know, we kick back in my room here, we'd watch the movie, take a quick bathroom break, and then just record. Obviously, that's not an option. Instead, we're on Skype, and we watched the movie on our own. You said you'd watched it, I think, what, last night? Yeah, you betcha. And, you know, I just finished watching it about an hour ago, and we'll do our best. Uh, we apologize for the quality. It is just Skype has a handy record feature, and we're just using that. That seems best. You know, we'll do what we can, just like everyone else. Uh, of course, we hope all our listeners are are staying safe. We hope that you're you're listening to the medical authorities in your country. For our Americans, of course, that's Dr. Fauci. Please, dear God, don't listen to Trump. Do, okay, you're a you're a paramedic, and I'm a former army medic. So, can we uh-huh. come to an agreement here that we should not drink inject or inject Lysol. bleach? Yeah, yeah, don't drink bleach. Okay, like, let's don't do let's, that. <laughs> let's run bleach. this down from the top. Don't drink bleach. Don't inject bleach. Lysol is bad for you. On to more hopeful subjects like our movie. So today we did 2010, The Year We Make Contact, and it premiered on the 7th of December, 1984. It was directed by Peter Hyams, who had done uh, actually a similar movie a couple years previous called Outland, which uh, you ever see the old old Western movie High Noon with Gary Cooper? I'm familiar. I have not actually seen it. It was essentially about a sort of a sheriff in a, well, some, you know, distant Western town. And he, uh, like, essentially at noon, he knows the bad guys will show up. And so the whole gist of the film is him getting ready for the arrival of the bad guys. Outland with Sean Connery takes place on a mining station, I think, on Titan. Okay. Uh, And... It was a, it was sort of a sci-fi version of it, but it's the same sort of feel as as 2010. That sort of it's futuristic. It takes place in space, but it's not like the clean Star Trek future. This is still very gritty and industrial looking. And right, uh, he also did Star Chamber, uh, which I saw a thousand years ago with Michael Douglas, which is about a bunch of judges who hire assassins to kill people who who get declared innocent by juries. It's apparently quite a good film. Uh, and he also did the Van Damme film time cop. Oh, really? Uh, which is, yeah. So he's, I mean, he, Peter Himes is, you know, he's been a, uh, he's just, you know, what you'd call like a working director. He's not sure. like a big marquee director, but he just, he just, he's pumping them out. And he didn't just direct this film. He also produced it. He wrote the screenplay based on the Arthur C. Clarke novel. And he did the cinematography. I noticed 
Uh, oh, did so, he really? Yeah, that reminds me a lot of Ridley Scott, who does his own, I'm not sure if he still does, but he used to do his own storyboards. Uh, yeah, he used to do it with, with watercolors, so that's pretty impressive. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. so Peter Hyams was kind of busy. Um, obviously, it's based on the novel by Arthur C. Clarke, and this is the sequel to the novel and the movie, came, which came out in May of 68, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, and there was a sequel, 2061, and then a further sequel, 3001. I haven't read the books, admittedly. Okay. Uh, I, I have seen the movie 2001. So it stars uh, Roy Scheider, who, of course, is best known for Jaws. He was in a weird 80s movie called Blue Thunder. He plays like the, uh, a police helicopter pilot who, like the LAPD, gets what is essentially a Apache gunship. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I didn't Practical. know LA was that rough. And Yeah, yeah. It, well, this is the 80s, right? So they just... Well, yeah, it's exactly. not quite... Yeah, it, it, it wasn't actually an Apache. There's no way they would have allowed an Apache to be used. But uh, <laughs> they, they made some mock-up, and the idea was all about surveillance, and it had, like, missiles and shit, you know, as, as police copters do. Um, right, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it also stars John Lithgow, who's an, an yep. immense actor, and Helen Mirren, who, of course, plays the Soviet captain. And it was rated PG. It was made on a budget of $28 million, and it made 40.4. So it turned a eh, decent profit. Yeah. Um, I can see why they didn't know, make a threequel, but. Well, 2061, I don't think was published until the 90s. And at that point, oh, no. like this movie was not well thought of enough that there was people clamoring for that third one. Right. Uh, and uh, I mean, I have friends who've read it and it's I think it's, it's essentially about uh, Haywood Floyd, who would, you know, who, that character at that point would have been in his 90s or so returning yeah. to Jupiter, uh, which is now burned out. Yeah, spoiler right. alert, it becomes a son. And then 3001 is about Frank Poole, who you've never encountered. He was uh, David Bowman's co-pilot who was left adrift in space. Oh, right. He's, he gets that. mentioned a few times in the film here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the idea is I think he's found in space in 3001 by something that was once Hal. Oh, okay. This is all being facilitated by the uh, by the uh, the monolith aliens. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but we're focused on 2010. Now, I kind of didn't play a trick on you, but I kind of set you up to approach this movie in a certain way, which is that you haven't seen 2001, and I wouldn't let you. Right. And so that's exactly how I encountered the film. I mean, obviously, I knew about 2001. I'd probably seen the odd clip here and there. Obviously, everyone knows the music, right? The beginning, when, you know, Thus Spock right, is Karapustra. Thus Spock is uh, the 2001 music. If you've seen 2001, there's no, there's, there's not as nearly as much mystery. You know what happened to Dave Bowman. You know what happened to Poole. You know exactly what this monolith is about. But if you haven't seen it, this makes, at least I thought as a kid, because I saw this on Super Channel, um, I thought this was like this really fantastic mystery because all I knew about 2001 was what we see at the beginning of 2010, the, uh, the report, you know, the text you see at the beginning of the film. Okay. So what did you think when you saw this? Uh, so I, 
like we discussed, I came at this without having fully seen 2001. Um, mm-hmm. As as everybody sort of is, I'm culturally familiar with it. Uh, yeah. I did. I kind of I kind of sat down and I wasn't exactly sure what to expect out of this movie, but mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you kind of come into a world that is plausible, and I think that that's one of my favorite aspects of good science fiction is coming into mm-hmm. a universe that isn't perfect, that where things have gone wrong, things are mm-hmm. kind of broken. Um, right. I, I really really like that aspect of this film. Uh, there's there's certain things that I I'm probably missing context for because I didn't see 2001, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, it does certainly feel like science fiction that's got its roots in you know the the 60s and 70s. Uh, it's kind of got yeah. that classic Star Trek feel to it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. It's it's like well, it's Arthur C. Clarke, so it's serious science, right? Yeah, that's I think as a kid what gave me like this film is not especially well thought of. I mean, it's most people would view it as mediocre, just, you know, it's good enough, but it's not nearly the mind blowing experience that 2001 was. I mean, it's one of the greatest American films ever made, you know, Stanley Kubrick at his height. But I like that. Like you say, there's things you don't get in context, but I like that. Essentially you only know as much as Haywood Floyd does. Mm. Well, maybe a little less because he's in the original film, but uh, like he sees the monolith on the moon. Right. Uh, that's the whole first, that's not the first scene, but one of the first scenes of 2001 is him traveling to the moon and seeing the monolith. And then the monolith sort of transmits a message to Jupiter. And that's when they realize there's a larger monolith there. Right. But you already, like, by that point in the film, you kind of know what the monolith is about, that it's about, it's about instilling intelligence on the in this case, the primates that are around it. It's a famous scene with the, the monkey using the bone to beat the shit out of other monkeys. And right. it, it's actually pretty cool. Uh, you should uh, now you should definitely watch 2001. Yeah, um, no, I'm going to go back and, and watch it eventually here. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So when I first like when I first saw it, just like you did, I I hadn't seen 2001. Uh, I didn't see 2001 until some, you know, sometime later. It's a very different film. It's a very artistic film. Uh, when Dave Bowman enters the monolith, uh, it's this wild psychedelic light show, which even by today's special effects standards is impressive. Uh, in um, uh, Roger Ebert's review of 2010, he talked about how when he saw 2001, younger viewers would go to the front of the theater and lie down on the floor, and look straight up at the screen so they <laughs> could get this weird effect. It, it's pretty cool. Uh, it, it's pretty neat. But yeah, the first one, like these are very different films. This is a very technical film. Like yes. it's very scientific. There's no, there, you don't get the sense of awe that you get from the original one, but I'm kind of okay with that because this is a scientific, like this is a science experiment. This is a scientific investigation. Right. And like, that's, I think maybe that's what attracted me to the film is that it's a lot like Star Trek in that everyone you meet is this really highly competent scientist or engineer or whatever. And everyone's super smart. There are, there's no action heroes in here. Mm -hmm. You know, Roy Scheider, you know, uh, you know, Haywood Floyd is an administrator and uh, and an astronomer. Yeah. I think the closest you get to an action hero is Max, the, uh, the Russian uh, cosmonaut. 
Yeah, yeah. And even in his case, he's, well, he's clearly, he's an engineer. He's a cosmonaut. He's, no one, there's no big explosions. Okay, there's one really big explosion when they ignite Jupiter at the end, but like, yeah. there's no running down corridors and screaming. And like the most exciting stuff in this film is communicated almost entirely by sound. You know, the, the probes flight over Europa, uh, Kurnow and Max uh, doing the EVA over to the Discovery. Like, it's just a little bit of movement and sound. Like, there's nothing... Like, I can only imagine if that film were made today what they would do to it. Right. Um, this film sort of takes its time, and it's about competent, highly educated people doing their thing, and the tension is in them not knowing stuff and i really like that um, yeah the the tension is it's never like the monolith the monolith is never really the tension the monolith yeah. is just there it's it's an actor yeah. whereas the tension comes i mean it's a lot of it's a lot of internalized tension as well right like mm. if uh if there were never a increasingly alarming beeping noise that were happening during the probes flight over Europa, yeah. we would not be nearly as like, it would still be an interesting scene, but it wouldn't be yeah. um, what I can only imagine seeing it for the first time in theaters as being like an edge of your seat kind of scene. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that this does a really, really good job of uh, playing on the, the viewers own pre-standing preconceptions and their own emotions in the moment. Yeah, because it's it's this wild mystery. Like, you have no idea. Even if you'd seen 2001, you will have no idea what the hell is about to happen. Are they going to see Little Green Man? Who knows? Um, yeah. Because in 2001, you never see an alien. Never, never, right. never. When Bowman enters the monolith, all he ever sees is himself as an older man and then as a much older man. That's the, the guy, remember when you see... Um, yeah, David Bowman near the end of 2010, you see him as yeah. a slightly older man and then as a super old man. That's yeah. because that's what he sees. He sees himself living out his life and dying in the monolith. Right. He never sees the aliens, or at least we are never seen. We, we never, we are never shown him seeing the aliens. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's these, these crumbs. And unless you've you know, read the book, you're not going to have no idea what you're, you're getting into. Sure. And, and I like that. I mean, it's just so much better than, I mean, you compare that to, say, Star Trek II, which, I mean, I love the film, but that's an action film. It's a submarine battle film with yeah. a couple scene-chewing actors uh, <laughs> competing on who can chew the most scenery, you know, right. Shatner or Montalban. No one here is screaming, monolith! Although that might have been a fun way to end it. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to go with no. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I guess let's go through this, see if we can pull this off and we'll go from there. Yeah. So it starts off with, um, well, ironically, uh, Metro golden mare celebrating its 60 years. It's diamond Jubilee. Uh, uh, they're not, they're not even really around anymore. I think they're just sort of a name only. Oh, really? Uh, well, they, they own the bond franchise and they own the rights to the Hobbit. And so frankly, that's how they survive. Oh, okay. I had but no I idea. don't think, yep. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think MGM, I don't think there's like, they've been dead for 15, 20 years now. I think, I don't think they make movies anymore. They're just an office somewhere. Okay. Um, they were one of the, hey, they were one of the originals, one of the big yep. boys, but you know, that's what happens. So then we get this really haunting music and it does, the music I think does a really good job of conveying 
mystery and tension. It's almost like, I think it's just a choir. And then we're seeing sort of pictures from 2001 with this text over the screen talking about, you know, a, a monolith found on the moon and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the discovery going to Jupiter and HAL 9000, the computer, killing the three scientists and murdering uh, Frank Poole outside the ship. He actually right. did, they actually do that by, uh, you know, that weird pod you saw in the docking bay in, um, Yep. In, in the Discovery, yep. it takes control of one and untethers Frank Poole and pulls his oxygen uh, tube, oh. like his oxygen hose out, and then okay. sort of sends him careening off into space and then won't let uh, Dave Bowman back in the ship. So that's the famous line. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. And so he sort of forces his way back in and deactivates Hal. Then he goes off to Jupiter enters the monolith, has this wild experience, and that's it. We never see him again. But right. of course, Haywood Floyd doesn't know this. He only knows what information he's received from Bowman. And right. it's neat because, of course, what we're going to learn very quickly that the report we are, we are reading on screen is really this Russian reading the report. Yes. And this film takes place nine years after 2001. And it's interesting because, of course, the films are almost 20 years apart. Uh, and I like that when you see the actor playing Dave Bowman, they don't try to hide the fact that he is, in fact, he looks a lot older. Mm-hmm. And I like that, that he's sort of, he's out of time, because you wouldn't expect a, a healthy young astronaut to look that different after nine years. But here he looks much older, because, of course, we know he's been through a lot. Sure. Uh, and that's kind of neat. I, I think that that part was kind of missed on me a little bit, um, just because I don't have, like, the direct mental image of exactly what he looked like in 2001, since I've not really seen it. Yeah, well, the only picture you'll have of him is the scene, like, during that report, we see the picture of him with the, his face shield down and the lights in his face. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then I think you see a couple portraits of him later on, like, when his mother is getting her hair brushed by that phantom yes. whatever. Yeah. You see in the background, did you see the New York Times front yes. page that was, yeah, yeah with, with uh, Frank Poole and, and then his wife, when he visits her, or right. when right. something visits her. On the TV, yeah. Yeah. It's funny, you know, this took place in 1984, and you can see the technology, like the computer screens are just televisions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they don't refer to it as a computer, they refer to it as a logic circuit, and yeah. like they really they really went with the terminology that was available to them when they wrote this in the 60s, the, you know, 2001, and they just sort of carried on as if this is the lingo they're using. So much the better, right? Why, why break that continuity? Yes, exactly. And of course, you know, it's 2020. We've been through 2010 and you think of how much more high tech we are than they were. And yet in their world in 2010, it's not a problem for them to send an expedition to Jupiter. Yeah. You know, there is a moon base. There are space stations in orbit. Mm. I mean, there's that's the thing with science fiction, right, is you're never going to nail everything to a T. There's lots of things that science fiction has called over the years. But certainly. We're nowhere near sending anyone anywhere close to Jupiter right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when 2001 was made, which is in the mid-60s, uh, and it came out in May of 1968, so it's uh, 13 months before the moon landing, the space race was on with the Soviet Union, which in this world still exists in 2010, does not collapse in the early 90s. 
you know, I think they sort of looked at the future and said, okay, well, if it continues on that trajectory, you know, by 2001, we will have space stations in orbit and Pan American Airlines, which of course went out of business in the late 80s, early 90s, they would have spaceships and you would be able to go to the moon and this would all be very, very normal. Right. Um, I don't think they expected the Americans to essentially hit the brakes on their space program. Yeah. And that's that's not an easy one to call when you're a science fiction writer or a movie director. So yeah. I think we can all kind of, you know, give them the slack on that. Oh, of course, of course. It's it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting artifact just like, you know, in certainly, in, certainly. in the actual 1980s, there was, you know, the Cold War was still very much on. There was still there was a lot of movies about nuclear Armageddon and you know, there was the worry that President Reagan would start, you know, or the or the Soviets, because they were pushing up against each other, that there might actually be World War Three, And so, you know, as good science fiction does, it portrays in a futuristic way the concerns of the day mm-hmm. in the writer's actual life. Right. And I like that. Um, yeah. You know, because if you think at the way we sort of butt up against Russia now, ironically, the president of Russia being a former, you know, KGB KGB operative. officer. Yeah. yeah. We look at the way we're sort of conflicting with Russia now and it's all information warfare and cyber attacks. There's no worry that tomorrow uh, Putin's going to launch nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Trump may nuke Iceland if they insult him on TV, but we don't have to worry <laughs> about Putin, uh, oh, yeah. you know, starting a nuclear war tomorrow. <laughs> Once again, don't drink bleach, but uh, it's kind of a neat snapshot as all science fiction is. Like if you look at 1960s Star Trek and the art direction, Holy shit, is that 60s? Yeah, I mean, just just go back and look at the uniforms in 1960s Star, yeah. Star Trek in the original yeah. series, and I think like the first four episodes of TNG. Oh, you mean like the short skirts? Yeah, very like late 60s stylized 60s, yeah. uniforms. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, Nichelle Nichols, who plays Uhura, when mm-hmm. she was asked, like, did you feel used wearing those short, short skirts? And she says, no, we saw that we felt them, we saw them as liberating. Right. The change in culture, yeah, you know, the freeing up of, of American society, which was very sort of straight-laced and conservative, sort of liberalizing in the 60s mm. with the breakout of you know, hippie culture and all that, you yeah. know, women's liberation and, and, and civil rights, and they viewed those as liberating. But yeah, I mean, if you look at that, that art direction, that's very specific to that time, which is, I guess, why I always sort of sneer to people who complain that Star Trek Discovery, which takes place in more or less the same era of the Star Trek universe as the original show doesn't yeah. look the same. And it's like, yeah, because we made this film in the, in, in, in the, you know, the mid 2010s, not 1960, yeah. get over it. You yeah. Know? And, and they do their best to harken back to that, that, uh, that art direction, but it's going to change. You know, we are in 2000, in this movie, 2010, we are looking at a future that was envisioned in the eighties. Yeah. You know, very different time. And it's, it's like, like any science fiction, it's, um, it's a unique artifact. Like when we did uh, the black, I did the black hole with Heather. We talked about how this movie was made in the, in the late seventies, but the pilots looked like they were these straight laced helmet haired heroes from the 1950s. Right. Because that's what they were going for. It was, and then, you know, the, the scientist looks like your crazy villain from the seventies. And, you know, it, it, they sort of mixed art styles in a, in a, in a way that makes it, its own unique artifact. Whereas this movie is very much a movie of the eighties. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it, it definitely is. It hits, 
it hits a lot of the feeling of the 80s in the the playing out of the film the finale of the film hits on a very like 60s 70s idealized oh the aliens are out there but they're happy and friendly kind of thing yeah well that's i think that was meant to connect to the way the the original film ended which was the space child the weird embryo and the, thing. yeah the star child yeah that was the final image of 2001 and right. it was meant to be ambiguous but we're starting to learn a little more that well they're showing you the metaphorically the birth of a new set of life right you know but it's uh I don't think it had the impact that it did in 2001, but it's no, you know, and especially if, if you don't have the context for it, I, I can attest. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't have the, the 2001 context, the, the whole finale of this movie loses a lot because I had to sit mm-hmm. down for a while and kind of ponder exactly what was going on before I kind of figured out, oh, okay, the monoliths, you know, create semi-intelligent life or intelligent life mm-hmm. and, that's why they can't now go back to Europa because the monoliths don't want any interference with what's now being developed on Europa, how they're terraforming the planet, yeah. and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's, like, it's some sort of catalyst. Yeah. It's some sort of tool that the aliens are using. Uh, and I think that's kind of neat. So we see the report, and then we hear the famous music, and this time the you know we're seeing the uh what you call the the radio telescope array i forget where that is i think it's in in new mexico or arizona it's a real place yeah i don't think there are as many somewhere out in the sonora desert i think i don't know um it is a real place Uh, yeah yeah, yeah. it's certainly used in other films they filmed uh parts of the movie uh, the wonderful carl sagan movie contact there Mm -hmm. which is probably my favorite science fiction movie it's too bad it's the 90s otherwise we'd do it it. jody Um, foster wasn't it yes Yes. Yeah. 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 And uh, Matthew McConaughey and yeah, yeah Tom Skerritt. It was great film written uh, based on the book by by Carl Sagan. Doesn't right. get any better than that. Yeah. So we, we you know the, the sort of the sun comes up on this this array, and we see this guy who's you know clearly a Soviet call out to Doctor Floyd, and it's a different actor. It, it was not Roy Scheider in the original film. I don't know who it was. Oh, okay. Um, but now. Yeah, but now we, you know, and, and, you know, this conversation is very much meant to get people like you and me who didn't see the original film up to, you know, up to spe- speed with who this guy was, that he used to be the administrator of, they don't call it NASA, but let's be honest, it's NASA. It's, it's NASA. Uh, it's NCA or something like that. You were chairman of the National Council on Astronautics. Now you are a school teacher. This was by your own choice. Chancellor of the university. It pays better. Something. Something like that. Whatever. It's NASA. And yeah. <laughs> now he, you know, he was forced out. And now he's the, uh, he's the, the chancellor of the university. And, it, and it's neat. Like we learned that, you know, the Soviets have never been given access to the monolith from the moon, the Tycho monolith. Right. And they haven't been able to pe- penetrate it. You never let us examine it. What have you found out about it? Nothing. It's impenetrable. Tried lasers, nuclear detonators, nothing worked. That's quite the range there. Yeah, that's a that's a but, jump. Like, hey, have you tried hitting it with a hammer? Cool, let's start there. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Laser? No. Okay, let's nuke the fucker. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, wait, you know. All right, yeah. cool. Calm, calm I, down. I can't, yeah, I can't help but think there's a few steps between laser drill and n- nuclear detonators. I just... Just saying. Uh, God, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Evidently, we're wrong. We're not scientists, though. What do we know? Yeah, what, what do I know? All I'm going to say is if you have trouble opening like a door, 
Before you go to the nuclear detonator, can I recommend several other options first? Your shoulder, a screwdriver, a drill. Before you go to the nukes, okay? Yeah. Just, just putting that out there for you. And you know, it's neat because even like this conversation between the two of them, where it's clear they don't trust each other because I, I think it's hard for us to imagine not trusting an entire country, but it's very much the Cold War mentality between yeah. the West and the Soviet Union. And so these two people who don't trust each other, but are both scientists, are having this back and forth. And it's very tense, not tense, but it's very distrustful. And yet, if yeah. you notice, it's like two super smart people talking to each other. Yeah, it's very much two hyper, highly intelligent people walking on eggshells. Um, yeah. The, and that's that's a great theme through this whole film is is sort of following yeah. along and like, okay, well, USSR and the USA, not on speaking terms. However, we're going to put them on speaking terms and then separate people from the reason that their countries are not on speaking terms. It really sets the tone because it's sort of like Star Trek The Next Generation. Most of the action is just dialogue. And I think people yeah. forget how much that is so. No one punches the other guy to make a point. There are no car chases or shootouts. These people are having a tense adversarial conversation, but it's a conversation between smart people. Yeah. And that elevates the film in my mind. Uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was during predator two. Um, you'd mentioned a, a Al Pacino film where heat heat. Yeah. You'd the, the idea of going and sitting down and having a civilized conversation with the enemy is, is very much yeah. how this whole thing feels. This, this scene where they're at the radio telescope array. Yeah. Uh, the only difference is, of course, is in Heat, you wondered whether it would end in an actual shootout, because that's how the film ends, with one guy killing the other. Uh, sure. By the way, you should absolutely watch Heat. It's a fabulous film. But uh, yeah, like here, it's just, it's, it's a conversation between smart people, and I really, really like that. And so, you know, he then goes to, you know, like, he, it sort of ends with, was it Versaevich or Mosevich, whatever, the Russian guy, saying, yeah. go check Discovery's orbit, and he does. And we don't actually see what the problem is. He just starts, you know, like, he starts losing his clearly mind. In, well, he doesn't freak out. Oh, my God. Like, there's not a, you know, there's not the action scene of him getting in a car and racing well, through sure. traffic to meet the guy at the White House. Sure, sure. Clearly, whatever it is has got his attention. And then we go to the next scene, which was filmed at the uh, in front of the White House, clearly yeah. on on, you know, on location. And it's neat because. Between where those benches are and the White House, at the time, was Pen it will, is Pennsylvania Avenue. But at the time, you could still drive down Pennsylvania Avenue. You could drive right in front of the White House. Oh, really? That actually only ended after 9-11. Oh, interesting. obvious reasons. Well, yeah, yeah, they closed sure. down Pennsylvania Avenue on either side of the White House. Okay. Um, and you could, now you can walk right up to the gates. It is now, as you see it in the film, but of course in, in, in 1981, 1982, when they were filming this, they would have had no way of guessing that. But my guess is, is that that's how they got the filming done, which was to block off the street and set it up as a park. Probably. And we get to meet uh, the new administrator of whatever, NACA, NASA, we'll just, we'll just go with NASA. And, you know, he's supposed to meet with the, you know, with the president who wants to sort of absorb his... Uh, NASA into the military because you've got this buildup with the Soviet Union around Honduras and they want to take control of his satellites and all that sort of stuff. And he's trying to say, you know, I didn't blame the whole thing on you. I didn't push you out. So now we know what happened to Haywood Floyd, why it is he no longer works for NASA. Yeah. Um, 
And again, despite the fact that, you know, they're on the brink of war, the NASA administrator is still willing to listen because, again, two scientists having an intelligent conversation about scientific things and saying, you know, here, you know, here's who we need to take. We now know everything we need to know about these two guys, Kurnow, who's building Discovery 2. So he's an engineer. Right. And um, Dr. Chandra, who built HAL, the computer. Yeah. But of course, we already know all we need to know about Chandra when the new administrator says, I think he is HAL. Yeah. And, and Floyd goes, yeah. yeah so exactly. we already know this guy is, well, I mean, unfortunately, he's the 1980s idea of the computer geek. Yeah, pretty much. He's socially awkward. He's kind of living in his own world. He views things, things very differently. That is very much a an artifact of the 80s, I think. Mm. I mean, to a certain extent, I, I feel like that's still relatively present, but it, it kind of gets relegated to a smaller subset. Not everybody with a computer is a giant computer geek. No, no. Many of us are, but he yeah. really, really is. <laughs> And it's kind of neat, like one thing we forgot to mention is that when, when Nurseyevich or Masevich, whatever, has a conversation with Haywood Floyd, he keeps talking about how things will look good on the front of Pravda. Um, oh, yes. The, uh, do you the recognize USSR that? State-sponsored newspaper. Yeah, Isn't Pravda it? is yeah. the Russian word for truth. And it was oh. the Communist Party newspaper, which, if you believed, you would know that, of course, there was no crime ever in, in uh, Soviet Union. The, mm-hmm. the economy was great, and everyone was very, very happy. Right, of and course. of course that's true because the you know it's Pravda, it's truth. Right off the bat, he is aware. Everyone is aware that this is a big propaganda thing, right? Because the Russians are going to get there first anyway, and the Americans look like they're coming, you know, sort of hat in hand, asking for a ride, which they are. But yeah. these scientists realize that politics aside, this needs to happen because everyone needs to know. And I love that the NASA administrator despite the fact that he's in this terribly precarious political position, in the end, he understands, yeah, it's got to happen. Yeah. And I think that that speaks well to a couple of things. It speaks well to the characters themselves, but also to the the writing and the directing of the scene, that mm-hmm. that these people are not just intelligent, but, intelligent, but they're pragmatic. They recognize yes. real realities of this situation and the the unfortunate truths that lie therein. Well, yeah, like the only one in this entire film who's really adversarial is the Soviet captain, played by Helen Mirren. She's very adversarial. I mean, at first. Well, really, for most of it, I mean, it's like she's she keeps she's always the one who says no. She's actually, I would argue, the main antagonist in this film. She's there to push back on Haywood Floyd. I mean, I feel like antagonist implies that there's a malice in a contest there, like. I, I feel as though the the primary antagonist can be an antagonist. That's uh, yeah, yeah. I suppose it's not, so. But, it's not malicious, but but you're so. but you can't ascribe intelligence to nature. She's not the enemy. She's not the bad guy. But I think just she's there to be the remind. She's there to be the Cold War. She's there she's, to be the manifestation. Yeah. But yeah, the point is, no one else here. Like everyone here, just wants the answers. Like mm-hmm. Max. He's super nice, the the cosmonaut and the the head scientist with the black hair, uh, who's sort of in charge of the probe mission to Europa. He's very cooperative. Yeah. The doctor's very cooperative. The only one who seems not to be is the captain. And yeah, well, I mean, she you know. but she's still cooperative. She's she's trying to do what's best for her crew 
she still mm. she still works with him. She doesn't trust yeah. him, obviously, but everyone's still working together. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's also you know sort of a standoffishness between um, Ch- Doctor Chandra, the builder of Hal, and as we'll learn in a second, Sal as well. Yes, uh, and Haywood Floyd, like they try to push back on each other, but that's more of you know, Chandra, as we're going to learn in a second, is the next scene is actually the University of Chicago. I like how they call it the computer lab because that's yeah. a place you have a lab. But of yeah. course, that's the way it was uh, in the 80s. And, uh, you know, he's very protective of what is essentially his child. He's protecting a child because he thinks his, he th- his child is being blamed for the failure of the mission. Because right. he killed people. So I think it's sort of him being protective. Yeah, it definitely right. is. I mean, you can... You can see that he walks in with caring and he starts having this conversation with Sal and, and discussing what the possible outcomes are with Hal when he goes out on this mission. Um, and he's just all he wants is that he's hopeful that Hal can be saved and reverted to normal and be able to have an explanation for why the mission went sour. That wasn't Hal being broken, that that he yeah, can have exactly. a redemption for his child. Yeah, this is very much, he is, this is a, this is a father. This is a father-child yeah. relationship between the two of them. hundred percent. Um, and so, yeah, so we see him activate Sal, the Sal 9000, which is, you know, a female version. Afternoon, Sal. Do you uh, have anything for me? No, Dr. Chandra. Do you have anything for me? We have often spoken about Hal. Yes, we have. We've spoken about Hal's anomalous behavior. You have told me that we cannot solve the problem of Hal's behavior without more information. They have this conversation, and it's a cute conversation. Um, you know, I want to start a pro- you know, I want to start a new uh, file, Project Phoenix, and they have this kind of funny back and forth about definitions, and yeah, and you know, he says, "I want to turn you off the same way that Bowman turned Hal off, and then turn you back on and see how that works." Are you okay with this? I like he asks Sal's permission, and her question is, will you dream? And he says, of course. I would like to ask a question. Mm -hmm. What is it? Will I dream? Of course you will dream. All intelligent creatures dream. Nobody knows why. Perhaps you will dream of Hal, just as I often do. And, you know, he makes that argument much later on when he says, um, you know, whether we're based on silicone or carbon makes no difference. We are all each owed respect right uh, which is a very like for science fiction is a very forward-looking thing because if you look at say the big science fiction of the 80s which of course is star wars mm-hmm. c-3po and r2d2 are big characters in those films yeah but they're property and no one ever thinks otherwise no one ever yeah. treats them as anything other than property even you know skywalker treats them as property even you know in the new films like in the like you know rise of skywalkers come out I, have you seen it uh yeah okay so yeah. you know when they so when they say yeah we need to like wipe your memory and reset you from scratch so you can you know read the sith writing no one ever seriously thinks um no you, you can you can say no to this like yeah they give them a chance to sort of allow it but it's pretty clear that they're going to do this to them i mean like, i think that i think r2 gets treated as as more of a, a character and a person. And I mean, yeah, this he's is more this... finicky or not finicky. He's more um, feisty. Yeah, I, I would. I, this is a discussion for another podcast. But I mean, I think that R2 gets treated as a individual thinking, breathing character mm-hmm. um, by, you know, multiple people throughout the series. Typically, it's whoever um, 
his whoever he is property of at that point in time, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's Anakin or Luke or Obi-Wan. And he always he always but, gets but, treated well. But yes, but 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 still as property. They're always treated yeah. as property. Like it never occurs to them to say, Do you feel up to this? Would you like to come with me? No, no, it's you're coming. Like there's mm-hmm. just and it's just it's the dynamic of this universe. Whereas yeah. here, Sal, I mean, still Chandra says, I'm gonna do these things to you. But it's not quite along the same continuum. Like I think at one end of the sci-fi continuum in the eighties, you have Lieutenant commander data from star Trek, the next generation who is viewed as a fully autonomous individual with legal rights. And in fact, there's a second season episode called measure of a man where they actually have that court case. It sits there looking at me and I don't know what it is. This case has dealt with metaphysics with questions best left to saints and philosophers. I'm neither competent nor qualified to answer those. But I've got to make a ruling to try to speak to the future. Is Data a machine? Yes. Is he the property of Starfleet? No. We have all been dancing around the basic issue. Does Data have a soul? I don't know that he has. I don't know that I have. But I have got to give him the freedom to explore that question himself. It is the ruling of this court that Lieutenant Commander Data has the freedom to choose. And at the other end, you have the droids from Star Wars that are, yes, they're talked to, because yes, they're artificially intelligent, but your property, you're going to do what I say. Behave yourself, Artu. You're going to get us into trouble. It's all right, you can trust him. He's our new master. You're my only help. He says that he is the property of Obi-Wan Kenobi, a resident of these parts, and it's a private message for him. Quite frankly, sir, I don't know what he's talking about. Our last master was Captain Antilles, but with all we've been through, this little R2 unit has become a bit eccentric. And I think Hal and Sal aren't quite at the midpoint. I'd say they're about halfway between the midpoint and the droid's pure property. You know what I mean? Like they're... Yeah, I mean... Like I, they're sort of three quarters of the way from Lieutenant, from Lieutenant Commander Data. I think that... Uh, I think that depends on who you're looking at in the in the film like if you're looking at widely across the board like um dr haywood he obviously sees them as property they are yeah he was boy doesn't give a shit same with Uh, her now yeah yeah whereas um chandra he obviously sees them on the exact opposite end of the spectrum he is asking them what they think and defines them as intelligent living beings and gives them the opportunity to, you know, voice and express their concerns and opinions. So, I mean, I think yeah. that, that dichotomy certainly adds to the film. Yeah. Haywood Floyd is on the star Wars end of the spectrum. No doubt. Right. Um, actually even a little furthermore, because he doesn't view Hal as an individual. Like he, yeah, he has a conversation with him, but he doesn't, he's not particularly interested in having a conversation with Hal other than no. to exchange information. Whereas it's clear that Dr. Chandra views and probably understands him to be an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, because they talk in 2001 about Hal was built the way he was so he could have a normal conversation 
with Frank Poole and Dave Bowman, who were their only company. They're the only two people on the ship. The other three were in, you know, cryogenic freeze. They had to, he had to be available to have a conversation with him. And that's something they, they make a point of pointing out in 2001. He was built to be treated as a crew member. Yeah. And I'm sure that a lot of that is kind of trying to retcon exactly why things happened the way that they happened in 2001. Um, because they give a very, they give a very long explanation about, oh, Hal did this because um, his interpretation of the orders that he was given and being classified. And is, I don't know if that's, is that all explained and laid out in 2001? Or is that kind of going back and saying, well, we need a reason for why Hal can be normal in the sequel. So how um, can Hal Well, be- in 2001, he starts off normal. And yeah. then what happens is uh, he starts to become paranoid because Frank Poole and David Bowman are aware that the monolith is is there. And remember, they don't know that Hal knows. Right. Right. They aren't aware of that. Of course, we don't know that until till till this movie. But they start, like, there's a point in the film where the two of them go into a pod to have a mm-hmm. conversation where Hal cannot hear them. But he can see them through the but glass. And fall and reads their lips. Yes. And that's when he, he kills Frank Poole. And I forget why they were outside the ship. I think it was to fix something. Um, and he kills the crew and, you know, Bowman deactivates Hal in a really excellent scene, which is sort of mirrored in 2010 when Chandra reactivates Hal in that floating area with the, the, the yeah. plastic bits. And, uh, you know, it, it actually fits quite well, but I have no idea having never read the books and have never heard Arthur C. Clarke talk about it. I don't know how much it was him sort of building backwards or when he wrote the book, did he understand what Hal's reasoning was? I honestly don't know. Okay. Yeah. Cause that was, that was kind of my initial reaction to that was, this is a lot of explaining to get back to point one when mm-hmm. point one could be like the, the, you know, the Occam's razor or the, the simple, the simple step being, Hey, he went haywire, hit the hard reset and away we roll. Yeah. But this is a, because this is a scientifically minded movie from a very scientifically minded author. Mm-hmm. I think it had to be more than that. Like 2001 is very fantastical, not in a fantasy sort of way, but it's meant to be awe inspiring and almost a little psychedelic. And you're meant to yeah. have more questions than answers. And it's like you're along for the ride watching things. You're meant to feel like this movie, like 2001, it's almost like Stanley Kubrick was the monolith alien. Yeah, you stupid human, you're never going to figure this out. You're never going to understand. Just sit back in your seat and watch. Right. And in 2010, it's a scientific investigation. It's a mystery that needs to be solved. What happened? And so this, because Hal is a quantifiable, he's a known quantity, mm-hmm. because Chandra built him, right. he programmed him, Hal behaves the way he does because Chandra told him to. And so when he misbehaves, Chandra understands exactly why. That right. he's given contradictory orders, he's told to lie, but also he's, he's taught to be a scientist and to gather all information and, uh, honestly without you know, bias and transmit it that way. Sure. And he essentially short circuits. He, he, he becomes paranoid. Yeah. And he, you know, 
but and I mean, clearly that... makes the decision, I can finish this mission, but the way to do that is to kill the people who are working against that mission. Like, that's yeah. an extreme leap, but it's, you know, it's an artificially, like, you know, like we always say, you never understand how someone, I mean, I'm sure you learned this as a paramedic, that you're never sure how someone will react to an emergency situation until it happens. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the idea here that, you know, nine out of 10 people may flee, but one guy will panic and set fire to his hair and run around the room. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how's that one out of 10? Yeah. With, but I mean, even where you described it there, you mentioned how short circuited implying mm-hmm. that something went wrong. The way they describe it in this film is that, well, nothing went wrong. He was just following the orders the way that he interpreted them. Yeah. I, when I say short circuit, I don't mean like a literal physical buzz. Yeah. 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 Pop. But, I, but I'm just like using something his, went wrong. Something, yeah, like he something has a, broke. He has a psychotic break. Let me put it that way. Maybe okay. that's the better term. He that's has a psychotic. The, yeah. that, uh, that's fair enough. I mean, I, I guess that that's me not ascribing enough, like the proper amount of sentience to him. In my mind, it just it comes down to zeros and ones that contradict other zeros and ones, and having a uh, having a computer trying computer paradox. And maybe that's one of the the more interesting themes of this film is what is life? Yeah. What creates that? Because the whole point of the monolith we learn is that. Certainly the hint from the first film is that the monolith is a catalyst for intelligence. Right. Right. The primates in the first film don't learn to use a bone as a tool until one day when the monolith literally, like, they wake up one morning and the monolith is right there. Yeah. You know, these primates sleep in a pit and right above that pit is the monolith. Yeah. And they, they become more excited and more upset. And then one of them starts using tools and then, you know, and of course we see, you know, the end of 2010 that it's being used to instigate life on Europa. Right. Um, and also to you know, ignite a, <laughs> ignite Jupiter. Yeah. But, uh, just become a yeah. second sun. Cool. Why not? All, all purpose. So, yeah. Did I ever tell you I have, I have a, oh, you have a monolith, have a monolith action figure? No. I've yeah. never mentioned I that. Think, think Geek. Uh, of course, they're gone now. Yeah. Think Geek used to do this thing every April Fools. They create fake products. Okay. And one of them was the Monolith action figure. Look, it's a <laughs> block of plastic. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, is that showing up? There, uh, you there you go. Yeah. So many people tried to order it. Yeah. That they said, okay. Yeah. I mean, it couldn't have been very expensive to no. build. There's no design phase. It's here are the, you know, it's got to be non a non reflective black surface. Here are the uh, uh, dimensions. Yeah, go now. And so when you get it, it's kind of funny because it was done in a package like the old blister packs from action figures from the eighties. Oh, really? Oh, it was cute. awesome. And I, that's I, I had to, I had to have one of those, and yeah, I do. There you go. He sits, he he sits beside my, uh, or it sits beside my Master Chief. Uh, oh, nice. So. <laughs> hey, but, so uh, before we go any further, are we going hmm. to, uh, are we going to mention the cute little Easter egg with Hal's name? Go ahead. I don't. I'm. I, maybe I miss it. Oh, okay. So take each letter of Hal and move it forward one letter in the alphabet. And what do you get? It's IBM. Yeah, yeah it's IBM. IBM. That was on purpose. Yeah, yeah, that was on yeah. purpose. That's right. I, I'd forgotten that. I remember in the book 2001, or maybe it was 2010, they talk about the birthday of Hal, the day they turned okay. him online. It was in 1996. And a lot of nerds yeah. celebrated that birthday in, in the real world. Oh, really? Funny. So. <laughs> I just want a computer voice that sounds like Hal. 
Um, but I don't think that uh, software can extrapolate from the lines in 2001 and 2010. And the actor no. passed away. Um, oh, that's too bad. But I if mean, I ever you... have a computer that talks, I don't want him. To, I don't want it to sound like Siri or Google. Sure. I want it to sound like Hal. So the next scene is at the Haywood Floyd household, where we learn that they uh, they have enslaved a dolphin. Yes, as a pet. Yes. Um, his his wife is a I'm guessing a professor of uh, marine, marine biology. biology. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. She seems to be and, the one who's studying it. So. Yeah, and so naturally showing her respect for the extremely intelligent dolphins, yes, she has yes. enslaved one as a pet. Um, <laughs> may hate, but you now compare that to the way Chandra treats an artificial life form. How? Mm -hmm. It's kind I, of an interesting, you know, it's... Yeah, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy. It, it also kind of makes you wonder, like, the representative nature of exactly what the dolphins are in the grander context of what the obelisks are to humans. The monolith. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I said obelisks. Monoliths are to humans. Yeah, yeah. Um, and very possibly. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's just, I found it interesting that something that's so highly intelligent is treated here as a pet, whereas Hal and Sal are not. But, you know, it's a, it's a pretty simple thing. Like, we get to see that, you know, uh, they have a pretty decent relationship. They're obviously, they're both academics. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't want him to come to her lecture because she'll be nervous. Yeah. She'll be nervous. And then he says, I'm going on a flight. And she gets very upset. Uh, in a very 1980s wife sort of way. Yep. You know, the, 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 the 80s wife who stands at the door calling for the boys to come in for dinner. Like, right. She doesn't right. say, oh, this is going to be a great opportunity for scientific advancement. And I, I'm so excited for you. She's upset. Yeah. Um, she, she's upset, uh, but she deals with it because that's what a good wife does in this movie. Apparently. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then the next, there's a quick scene after where he's sort of explaining to his son what's going to happen. And there's a yeah. very eighties moment in it where you see this car pass and it's like the eighties idea of a high tech yes. futuristic car. Um, but it and looks it's just like the block. cyber truck. It looks like the Tesla yeah, cyber truck. Does it? I hadn't noticed that. It's um, so does. And if you notice well, the I mean, sound effect, if you notice the sound effect, it's kind of like a hovering like it's sound electric. effect. Yeah, like it's electric. Yeah. But if, do you remember when uh, Bowman visits his wife and you see the commercial after and oh. the car had suicide doors? Oh, yes, this. Yes. Yeah, like I said, that just like I said, that's right out of the 80s. And then there's another scene of him and his wife talking in bed. I don't want you to go. You've tormented yourself about this for nine years. And him saying, I have to go. And she's kind of the disappointment in this movie because like, she's not a dumb person. There's no reason to treat her as the 80s girl. And yet they are, despite the fact that she's clearly just as educated as he is she's just as intelligent as he is and yet yeah it, complaint is it's just you know uh, it's just a played character yeah, poorly written i mean yeah. she does a fine job of it but it's just she's the 80s girl. oh sorry i yeah her her character is poorly deployed in the film yeah yeah so but i couldn't tell you whether that is so in the book right uh, sure i'm sure know, she's got a much larger role in the book I honestly couldn't say. Uh, right now I'm reading Titus Groan by Mervyn Peake, but maybe I'll read this one next. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, by the way, that's a kick-ass book. Uh, right away, you know, we're on the Alexei Leonov, the, the ship. Yes. Remember, it used to be called the Titov, but uh, we changed last month. We changed it. All out of favor. Yeah. That's a very, that, very Russian thing. Does uh, that... By the way, Alexei... Go ahead. I was actually just going to ask uh, what the significance of the names was in particular. Um, I think Alexei Leonov was uh, a cosmonaut. And Titov oh, okay. is a general. I think. Oh, okay. real, I think I'd have to look it up, but considering it's it's Arthur C. Clarke, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt it. Right. But, 
Yeah. So we see that um, the doctor aboard the ship is has woken up Haywood Floyd. He's woken him up a few days early ahead of Kurnow and Chandra. And they have a conversation because they're on approach to Europa. And it's just a quick science lesson for fans who don't know this. Jupiter is like 70-something moons. Go figure. It's yeah. got a lot. But the four big. biggest ones, they're called the Galilean moons because Galileo saw them because he had a shitty telescope and he can only see the big ones. And that was Callisto, Ganymede, yeah. Io, and Europa. Europa, it's interesting. Now we know it has water vapor. Yes. And we're pretty sure that under about two to two, anywhere from two to 10 kilometers of ice is an ocean. Water. Like a water ocean. NASA is actually sending probes to check that out. Well... Um, who knows? Maybe there'll be a big old black brick on it. <laughs> Maybe. I think the plan is right now, like a book back for Dowsey, who was the uh, guy who landed the probe on Mars, the Curiosity yeah. lander. Uh, he's now working on this. And I guess the plan is right now, because of course they're just in the planning stage, is to pass through one of these geysers that shoots out of Europa and they'll capture the stuff and see if there's biological matter in the stream. Because, of course, if they drill down into it, assuming they could even manage it, you're immediately contaminating the environment with, with stuff from Earth. Right. Like, we, they, we could wipe out an entire ecosystem of life because we freaking drilled down there. So they want to be careful that, you know, but uh, that's exciting that there could actually be life there. But back yeah. then, they didn't know that. And, 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 you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was just the Voyager passed by. And all they knew is that it was, it was very icy with a lot of gouges in it. Like, imagine someone scratching at ice. Yeah. And so what the Alexei Leonov crew has detected is that there's something, and it is moving towards the sun. Right. And then, of course, the probe goes over. This is what, what we were talking about earlier, that the tension is done entirely by sound. The beeping of the probe as it gets closer to the whatever. Yeah. Oxygen. And then when the beeping gets too fast, then it becomes this different sound. And I thought they did a really good job with just the sound generating tension. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like that, that is um, something that's carried forward from 2001. As somebody who's not seen it, you still know the one of the basic tenets of 2001 is driving that tension forward with the silent spacewalks. Where all you hear is the breathing. Um, And they, they do an excellent job of continuing to play on that. They, they actually pick up a lot of really good tenets in this film from the first one be that stanley kubrick's set design and the contrasting red and white colors um they also do an excellent job with the sound design frequently in this we'll get to the eva with kernow and and kernow in a bit and that's that's another fantastic use of sound in that whole scene yeah where all the tension is because there's no sound in space Uh, though i actually think the sound design in this one's a little better because they have like when, when we finally do come to uh, the discovery, there's that sort of sound in the bra- background. It almost sounds like dolphin cries, and it's not meant to be literally there. It's just ambiance they've added. <laughs> but 
Yeah. Whereas in 2001, no sound at all. Because of right. course there wouldn't be sound. No. Kubrick in that one case was being much more literal, but I like the way it's done here. And so, you know, the, the probe gets closer and closer and then the sound, get, like the, 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 the sound effect gets more tense and more tense. And then we see some green blur because, you know, the, the probe is passing over a, a crater and it's got like this crappy spotlight and the spotlight spots something green and there's a white flash and the probe just goes flying off into the distance. Like it's just clearly something shot it down or whatever. Oh, sure. okay. I must have I must have missed that. I thought that that was some kind of bolt of energy that went blasting off past the uh, past the probe. No, it, it the, the the thing the the bolt of energy was the probe. So I think right. like it's the same thing that happens to Max later, right? That it's uh, they they sort of bundle up the intruding object here, the probe later, Max and his lander, uh, and sort of send it off to God knows where. Oh, okay. Right. So that's what that is. So uh, quick follow up: uh, German Titov yeah. and Alexei Leonov were both Russian cosmonauts, Soviet cosmonauts. Well, there you go. And you know, one thing we learned why you know, just before the the probe gets, I guess we'll just say, shot down, they de- they detect chlorophyll. Yes, uh, which is an Earth thing. Like that's the one thing about if we discover life on Europa, it will be in no way based on Earth. Yeah, no way. So there won't be chlorophyll. It would almost be disappointing if we found carbon-based, DNA-based life forms that matched Earth's biosphere. Yeah, because right now we. All life on Earth is genetically similar. We share, I think it's like 78% or 80% of our DNA with a tree. Well, you don't look much like a tree to me. And yet we're all very similar because we all come from the same place. So life on another planet would be a completely different thing. It would look nothing like us. Yeah, you're, you're developing something in a... A vacuum completely, uh, I shouldn't say a vacuum because we're discussing something in space, but you're developing life through evolution in an entirely different subset. It doesn't matter how small those differences would be, whether it's the distance between uh, the planet and its nearest sun, that's going to cause a massive difference in exactly how everything's shaped. Exactly. But here, it's almost disappointing, but of course, if it's chlorophyll, it means that I think the sort of the conclusion you must come to is that life on Earth and life on this planet are linked, and that link is the monolith aliens. Right. Whether they took life from Earth and transplanted it, like, hey, they've already got chlorophyll, let's use that. Because at the end, when you see Europa, it's been changed from an ice world into what looks like a swamp, a primordial swamp with trees. And those trees look an awful lot like trees on Earth. So yeah. really, all the, the monolith aliens have done is that there was no life on Europa. They put life there. And whether that life that was put there means they also put life on Earth, or if it means they simply took a little bit of Earth life and transplanted it, that we don't know. And I don't think we ever find out. I, um, though, again, I, I haven't read 2061. Yeah, I mean, to me, the the more logical conclusion is to to make the leap that if they seeded life on this other planet, then they likely seeded life on earth as well. Um, that's yeah. just sort of like the, the most straightforward line of logic in my opinion anyways, but what do I know? Uh, yeah. So, so essentially they, this is just the second time they've used the same toolkit. Yeah, exactly. This is like, they are 
these cosmic beings who just sort of seed life around the galaxy or universe or whatever. We don't know anything besides what's happening in our solar system, but that's entirely possible. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, of course I don't know and you don't know and no, exactly. You know, again, you'd have to read the, you know, you know, there's someone listening to this who has read these books and is screaming, you idiots, yeah. it's this, but who knows, but it is kind of fascinating. Like they find life, like imagine like right there, imagine what an immense thing it would be if we heard from NASA, we have definitive evidence of life on Europa. Yeah. That would be incredible. That would be incredible. It, um, it really would. I mean, it's... The religious implications, among nothing else, is pretty impressive, but... See, I wasn't even going to bring that up, because I'm trying to help you yeah, yeah, yeah. listeners. Yeah. Um, hey, I'm an atheist <laughs> as well, but... I, I think that if we were to if we were to have that idea come up of hey we we know there is life out there there's life on other planets for sure there is no other question about it I mean that raises so many other other questions like just yeah. to to name the few famous ones you've got questions like the Fermi paradox you've got questions of exactly where we are in the universal timeline because there's mm. there's a funny little statistical anomaly where we are equally as likely to be the most scientifically advanced species in the galaxy as we are to be the least scientifically advanced species in the galaxy. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it's, you ever heard of, you've heard of the Drake equation, I assume. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, for those, for our listeners go on to YouTube, type in Carl Sagan Drake equation and he walks through it. Though the interesting thing is that he assumed that only one out of 10 stars would have planets. And now we know in fact, oh it's like nine out of 10. Um, yeah. So, it's still pretty damn cool to uh, to look at, but you know, here they are out there, and they realize there's like it's extraordinary. There's life on Europa. That's pretty wild, uh, yeah. and that's like at that point we're only thirty minutes into a two hour movie, and oh yeah, there's other life in the galaxy. Congratulations! Like yeah, it, but I mean, it, it's by, pretty by neat. the same point. Light, little, so little is made of it, you know. Like they say, hey, this is amazing. Let's have a quick meeting about this. By the way, we got other stuff to deal with right now. <laughs> Yeah, and then they do the the thing where they sort of they slingshot around Jupiter to reach yes uh, they Europa. Use arrow breaking, which is a genuine yeah. thing. Dear Caroline, I miss you terribly. The time has come to put ourselves in an orbit around Io, which is where the discovery is. We don't have enough fuel to slow ourselves down, so we are about to use a technique called arrow breaking. The theory is. We will enter the outer layer of Jupiter's atmosphere using what is called a balut for a shield. The atmosphere will slow us down and Jupiter's gravity will grab hold of us and slingshot us around behind the dark side. If all goes well, we'll wind up in a gentle orbit around Io. It's dynamite on paper. Of course, the people who came up with the numbers on the paper aren't here. Since no one has ever done this before, everyone up here is as scared as I am. Difference is, they're busy. I have nothing to do but wait for it to happen. I hope this is all worth it. Yeah, well, that, that's that's Arthur C. Clarke through and through there going, how would you actually do this? He probably spoke to people he knew at JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and said, yeah. talk to me. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is, is that they make it seem here like it only took a few minutes. But mm. I think you got to, I, I think, you know, for our listeners, you can fit a thousand Earths in yeah. Jupiter. And the International Space Station goes around the Earth in low Earth orbit every 90 minutes. So they are not in low Jupiter orbit. They're way the hell out there. And 
this so and if so if it's like a imagine if you could fit a thousand earths let's say assume it's five thousand earths across or 500 earths across like you'd be arrow breaking for hours if not days but well, maybe you know, i mean i suppose that also right? de- that also depends on the speed that they're traveling in this science fiction yeah, world well, clearly and en- clearly not enough to turn them into chunky salsa no, not enough to turn them into junkies. But I mean, like, what I'm getting at is there's some level of suspension of disbelief that you have to go on with the science yes. here because they can go to Jupiter and we can't go to Jupiter. So obviously there's there's some yeah. kind of other interplay there where their spaceship is more advanced. Like, yeah, but they're not using, like, Star Trek inertial dampening fields so they can go super, super fast and not wind up, again, chunky salsa at the back wall of the room. Um, like, to generate gravity... Alexei Leonov has that spinning thing in the middle and right. there's no gravity on discovery until they, uh, what do you call it? Until they get it up and running, but they never actually explain how gravity works there. No, they really uh-huh. don't. Actually in 2001, I think they do sort of, Oh, okay. but I don't quite remember how they did it, but it's, I'm not, I'll, I think we just have to leave it to, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but there's no, there's no grav plating. This is not Star Trek. No, um, what they what they do have going on though is they've got uh, a they enter into Jupiter's atmosphere. They begin their arrow breaking. They deploy a big old heat shield, which um, is essentially the, the balloon, same. a balloon, yeah, a balloon, yeah, yeah. It's it's essentially similar to what's used with uh, modern reentry. I mean, it's not a balloon when it's used in reentry to Earth's atmosphere, but yeah, they, it's they some use kind of a ceramic tiles, yeah. Yeah, they use a heat shielding, which the capsule has a, a wide bottom to it. And as it reenters the atmosphere, naturally that wide bottom flips so that it's pointed towards the ground and it's got a whole bunch of ceramic heat shielding on it, which yeah. blows the flames out back past the capsule and allows uh, astronauts to reenter the atmosphere safely. Yeah. But and this, here they, they can't they create exactly. that like creating the balloon. Yeah. To protect yeah. the Alexei Leonov's nose. So it can rip around the planet. And it's a neat scene. Like, again, it's, it's tension because of engineering and science stuff. It's not a dude with a gun. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's scientific tension. This is a science movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I really like that. It's a neat little scene. It's one of the few sort of personal, intimate, not in a sexual way scenes where one of the crew members, a woman, gets in his what would you call it his bunk bunk yeah his bunk is sort of a capsule a pod yeah it's a better term and they sort of buckle in together and ride it out together and she gives him a quick kiss on the cheek as a thank you and that's it like there's nothing sexual about it it's just no you know she's got nowhere better to be so she'd at least rather ride this out with someone else and i thought it was kind of neat yeah. it's two um, people who are very evidently absolutely terrified for their lives and justifiably so well yeah could you imagine doing that <laughs> i can't um yeah. What I like is that when it's over, the uh, the captain, she's like, you know, hard as nails. And she just sort of blows off the high G terror and goes back to work. And the co-pilot just sort of looks at her and shakes his head. Yeah. like, Yeah, and that's all done in Russian, too. You don't have subtitles or anything, but you don't yeah. need subtitles. You can immediately just pick up. She goes, okay, back to it. I love that there are no subtitles. Yes, I loved it because it creates an extra level of technical... There's something, there's a cloud of technical, um, I don't know what you call it. Ambiguity? Technical ideas and words that sort of float above your head. Yeah. Star Trek solved that with 
it's very famous, especially in next gen. It's very famous techno babble. Yes. But the techno babble was in English. So anyone with any scientific or engineering training would go, well, that's bullshit. Here, they avoid that by having the crew speak in Russian and you don't understand, unless you happen to speak Russian, I guess. Right. Not understanding them. And that was kind of neat. Um, I, yeah, that's definitely neat. Although I do note that a Russian built spacecraft with Russian personnel and Russian software and Russian everything has mm -hmm. English alarms. I think that is because the crew was partially English speaking. I, I, think I would imagine because probably so. But. At the end, when they do the countdown for her to to you know to sort of push away from Jupiter, yeah, she says she as she's counting down ten, nine, eight, seven in in Russian. Yeah, a voice that does not belong to anyone on the crew repeats it in English. Mm -hmm. So I think they have what is effectively Siri <laughs> translating for them. Like, and that makes sense. Like, if you know you're you're carrying Americans who don't speak Russian with you, you have to make some sort of uh, accommodation for them yeah no a hundred percent it was just one of those things that it it really sticks out to you when when you've just gone through a scene where they're speaking russian and the americans are kind of in the dark um to hey doctor uh, i almost said dr fauci but that's not right <laughs> yeah <laughs> doctor no. the bridge yeah doctor yeah, 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 yeah haywood floyd to the medical bay and that's yeah. yeah but that is an actual member of the crew calling him out um, oh was I it think that was, was the doctor yeah I thought I that, that, that was the doctor. Like an alarm. Okay. No, no, that was the, either the doctor or the um, the co-pilot, oh, the one okay. who sort of shakes his head at at the captain. Yeah, but yeah. you know, she's portrayed very much as sort of the tough as nails female captain because in a extremely male dominated job, the woman has to be, and this is unfortunately true, she has to be ten times as good and ten times as, as tough. Or she's dismissed as just the woman. It, it, it's sexist bullshit, but it's true. And the military in the 80s, hell yeah. Um, so this is why she has to be tough as nails. Because it's, that's just the way she's got to be in order to get... I mean, look, w this is a prestigious position she's got. She's the captain of a Jupiter-going spacecraft yeah. on a high-priority mission. And I, I, I appreciate that they recognize she has to be the best. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of like Margaret Houlihan in M.A.S.H., because she's a major oh, yeah. in the army, she has to be tougher than everyone else. She has to be better than everyone else because no one, because she's a woman, everyone dismisses her. Sure. Same sort of thing. But, yeah, uh, very much so. Yeah. So then they wake up, uh, Chandra and Kurnow. How do you feel? Oh, like shit. That's about right. I have this terrible taste in my mouth. <laughs> Takes about 12 hours, then it goes away. Everything all right? Yeah, everything's fine. Are we there yet? Well, we should reach the discovery by tomorrow morning. How is air breaking? We're here, so it worked. Oh, I wish I could see that. I wish I could have slept through it. Oh, by the way, all your messages are in the communication bay. They're probably decoded and copied by this time. I hope you didn't have anything private. There's a certain paranoia here. Yeah, what the hell is going on? This doctor, what's his name? Rodenko. Rodenko. Yeah, he acted like he'd found us under a rock. He says, you know, things have gotten worse, and... He tells him about the chlorophyll, but even he says, you know, we can't talk here. So yeah. there's obviously some paranoia about the ship because things on Earth, the blockade in Honduras, has clearly gotten worse. Worse, yeah. Um, yeah, that is this well-documented tension that runs consistently throughout the film. Well, we don't get the exact details of it. There's a, a Honduran blockade that Russians are trying mm -hmm. to run for yeah. whatever reason. Well, if, 
if you remember the the conference they had just after they they uh, woke up Dr. Haywood Floyd, the captain kept talking about like well well Haywood Floyd was trying to talk about the you know the, the discovery of something on Europa uh, that it's moving it's moving towards the sun we're going to send a probe. She kept trying to talk about the blockade. Remember, you yeah. know and I know that my country will not allow a blockade. So she's like I said, she's kind of the representation of the Cold War, right? Uh, whereas no one else seems to give a shit about it. So the next scene is the next scene is the spacewalk, which I think is the best scene in the whole film. Yeah, I I absolutely love this scene. So you get the the setup with them getting uh, Kurnov and Max set up and prepared to actually go to the spacewalk, and we learn that Kurnov uh, he's not really comfortable with this, to say the least. He consistently <laughs> yeah, reiterates, you know, I'm an engineer, I'm not an astronaut. What the hell am I doing here? You know, just before that, they show that uh, they've approached Europa and the Discovery, which is like a pencil with a bulb at yes. one end and the engines at the other. Yeah, it's sort of spinning round and round and round. And it's now yellow because yes. Io has sulfur uh, volcanoes. And uh, by the way, it was initially white. Yes. Uh, in 2001, it's white. And uh, we see that it's sort of spinning and they sort of head over to it in, in a in a spacewalk, an untethered spacewalk where they're tethered to each other. And the only thing we hear is is um, Kurnow's breathing and right. like how panicked it is. 40 meters. Don't close your eyes. Don't breathe too deep. Kuritsa. Kuritsa. It's a well, yeah, he's fucking terrified. Can you imagine looking down and seeing the endless void of space? Holy shit. Like he's terrified. And you know, John Lithgow, he doesn't get enough credit, but the sound of him breathing, like, first off, that must have been exhausting to to record because he probably spent oh. freaking hours doing it over and over and over again. Certainly. He must have been just lightheaded and exhausted by the end of this. But yeah. it's an it's an immense performance. That's a hell of a an acting job there. It really is. And you know, like, don't get me wrong. I I love John Lithgow. I love John Lithgow and mm. just about everything he exactly. does. I I thought that he did an amazing job in this film. Um, even if for for nothing else, but being able to play this slightly weedly American um, engineer. Uh, engineer. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and he does that very well. He he plays that off quite nicely. It's not the usual character that I, I'm used to seeing John Lithgow play. But anyways, that's more zany. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very much more Third Rock from the Sun than 2010. Yeah, <laughs> yeah fair enough. Yeah. Oh, he's he's very good at all that. Like he's he's a very oh, versatile yeah. actor, and he really does a good job here. And and having Max try to calm him down, and talking in Russian, and uh, you know what's the yeah, what's what the word for chicken? Max, how do you say chicken? What is it? You speak better than me. It's a yeah. neat moment. Yeah. And 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 Max is so calm and we're almost there and we're here and I'm with you. And it's like it's he's super calm and he says, Don't worry, it happened to me the first time because he hyperventilates and Max says, Don't worry. The same thing happened to me the first time I did this. And he says, When have you done this before? He says, Never. So the whole idea that Max <laughs> actually had the same reactions, but you know, Max is a cosmonaut, so he knows how yeah. to deal with it. And yeah, I think it's kind of to, to neat, adjust but... his CO2 mixture and, and breathe normally. 
Yeah. So it, it's kind of neat. And they, and they do reach the other, uh, you know, they reach uh, the discovery and it's covered in, in sulfur uh, because again, IO is sulfur uh, volcanoes. Yes. Uh, there's a neat scene in cosmos, the original show where one of the, like they're going over these pictures that they got from IO and you hear one of the female astronomers say, are those volcanoes? Like you actually get to hear the moment the human race discovered that IO had volcanoes. It's very, very oh, cool. cool. Uh, yeah. So anyway, they managed to get into the ship and again, this is purely about engineering. Yes. There's no buzzing aliens. There are not, you know, meteorites. There's no anyone getting adrift. It's, it's none of that. It's just, here's an engineering problem. Let's fix it. Right. And they get inside and it's kind of neat because they, uh, like, you know, this is 100 degrees below zero. And I don't know whether that's Fahrenheit or Celsius. He says, you know, typical Russian winter. And he flips open the mask and <laughs> says, I breathe normally. And, you know, the the, uh, the doctor saying, you know, make sure he doesn't turn blue. And then he yeah. panics because he smells what he thinks is a dead body. And it's a great bonding moment because now Kurnow is calming him down. And he says, maybe, you know, maybe it's Frank Poole. No, Frank Poole died outside the ship. Well, maybe Bowman, you know, reached back the ship. No, he never got back. And it's, and of course we learned very quickly that it's just spoiled food in the galley. Yeah. Um, though after nine years, I don't think it would still smell. Um, not in space. Well, no, because oh, there's no, oxygen. There's atmosphere. There's atmosphere. Right, right, right. Um, 100 degrees below zero in oxygen. I don't think you'd yeah. smell. No, uh, no, you, I I doubt you would either. And I would assume that it's probably a hundred degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Um, I would guess, but I'm not sure what that is in Celsius. I'm sure it's, nope. it's fucking cold, whatever it is. But uh, yeah, so then they get the ship, they get discovery sort of righted. So it's not spinning anymore and they maneuver it. So it's moving beside the Alexei Leonov and we get a message from earth saying, you know, things are getting worse here. We're glad to see that, you know, the ship is running. Hooray. And then we get sort of the mirror scene from 2001, which is like in 2001, after Bowman makes it back into the ship, after Hal tries to lock him out, he goes to this area, which is sort of like the brain of Hal. And he starts removing those plastic, what we, what will we call them? Plastic, not Rods. chips, plastic inserts. Rods. And he starts inserts. removing them. Whereas Bowman was sort of deactivating Hal and his voice kept changing as Bowman started, you know, sort of disconnecting the bits of him and his voice kept changing. Now it's the opposite. It's Chandra reinserting them a piece, you know, one at a time, obviously in an order that's meant to not blow up Hal, I guess, or not blow him up, but not short circuit him or something. Uh, we, we can assume that he already tried this procedure on Sal and yes. had had that layout. Well, that's we in fact, that's literally what he did. Remember, because he yeah. said, that's what I'm going to do to you. Yeah, and we, so, we can assume that it went well because I mean it works out here, but we never we never see that. There's there's never a point in time where he goes like, Oh hey, yeah, I tried this once before and it didn't pan out well or something like that. Yeah. Well, because we already know because that's that's how he, that's what this is literally what he did to Sal. Because remember yeah. that after Bowman deactivated Hal, he well, you don't know because you haven't seen the film, but after he deactivated Hal, he took direct control of Discovery himself and carried on with the mission. Right. So presumably after, and we never see this in the movie, but presumably he contacted Earth and said, okay, now you need to tell me everything because I've had to shut down Hal. And they probably said, okay, here's the monolith. Here's what we know. Carry yeah. on. So we're just seeing sort of the, the resurrection of Hal. And it's kind of neat um, the way the voice keeps changing. Scene. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, the voice keeps changing until it's the calm voice of Hal. And that's one of the sort of, he's sort of the iconic computer voice or one of them. Sort of yeah. the calm, you know, hello, Dave. And, it, and that was what made him so creepy in the original film. Like, right. open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't yeah. do that. And it's like, you know, it's sort of like the guy with a chainsaw saying, just sit still. This won't hurt a bit. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The, the quiet malice. The quiet. Yeah. The quiet. Well, it's not even malice. It's just the quiet, uncaring voice of someone who's about to kill you. Yeah. And doesn't have, and is not emotionally invested. Yeah. Um, but it's a good scene. It goes on for about three minutes. And you think in a modern film, that wouldn't be a, that would not be a 30 second scene. Yeah. You know, um, but then of course, immediately we learn that, you know, in the next scene that Haywood Floyd and Kurnow don't trust Chandra. And so they've, you know, uh, Kurnow has been asked to install what is essentially a circuit cutter to, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, disconnect Hal from the his ship? ability to operate the ship. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's kind of neat and it involves like a calculator, which is really a transmitter and then, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. And what happens next? Uh, all oh, right, they discuss uh, checking out the monolith. Yeah, so they they sit around and they they talk about the monolith and they plan a flyby and they get yeah. set and ready to yeah. do that. And the Americans think it's a really bad idea, and uh, you know Max thinks uh, he wants to go. He says, "Hey, peace." And this is a kind of a neat linguist language thing. He says, "Hey, a piece of pie." Yes. And Kurnow yes. says, "No, no, no, piece of cake." And then later he'll say, "Easy as cake." No, no, easy as pie. Like it's it's kind of a neat. Yeah. It's about language. You know, again, there are no machine guns. There's no people running down corridors while explosions follow them. There are no aliens trying to rip your throat out or extract your testicles through your ear. Like it's, it's just <laughs> all the tension. You don't, don't picture that. Um, yeah. okay. um, like it's all, it's all the tension of smart people doing smart things yeah. and discussing it. And I love that. But eventually they do decide to send uh, Max out on a lander and their lander is kind of scary looking. It looks a lot like the old Apollo landers. Does it? Um, I thought so, but with arms, like sort okay. of arms that reach out. And so he sort of goes over the monolith and this monolith was, what did they say? It was about two kilometers stem to stern, I think. Something like Along that. The, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty fucking huge. Whereas the previous monolith, which you haven't seen is about twice the height of a man. Yeah. No, you see it in a few shots at the very beginning. It's right. not huge. Right. The picture from, you see the picture of the guy reaching towards the monolith. By the way, that was Haywood Floyd um, ah. you know, from 2001. Again, you really right. got to watch this movie. He's floating over it, and at one point they say, well, maybe he should extend his hands in friendship. And Kurnow says, I don't know about you, but if I saw that thing reaching out towards me, it scared the yeah. piss out. But, yeah. that's, but again, that's, like, that's scientists coming at this from different points of view, because to us, the open hand, like because we have the handshake, or we did until coronavirus, the <laughs> whole point, the origin of the handshake was, see that I do not have a weapon in my hand. Right. That was the point. And we assume... That like, or, you know, uh, Haywood Floyd assumes that the monolith aliens will understand that's a gesture of, you know, of openness. Right. Um, sure. You ever see Babylon five? You ever watch that show? Oh God, not in a long time. Okay. But you know it, you've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I used to watch it with my dad. Um, Oh, okay. So I'm not sure if you ever saw the scene from the, one of the movies they did, I think it was called in the beginning where they show the very first meeting between the Mimbari and the humans. Okay. And the Mimbari, you know, the idea is that the, the Grey Council, their leading council, travels the stars in a fleet of ships, and they encounter the humans that they only ever really heard of. They've never seen them. And because it's the warrior caste that controls the ships, they control how the, you know, the, 
they control how this meeting will go. And what it is, is they open all their weapons ports and the humans freak out and shoot at them. But from the logic of the Mimbari, well, we have the gun ports open. You can see we come to you hiding nothing. But how do the humans view it? Holy fuck, they're about to shoot at us. Yeah. And that starts the Mimbari war. I'm sure that when J. Michael Straczynski was writing that scene, he was thinking about this sort of, you know, because he would have seen this, this movie, of course. It's the same sort of thing. What to us seems like a harmless gesture. Let me hold my arms out. You can see I mean nothing or I'm waving. How right. do we know that to the aliens that isn't, I'm coming to get you? You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. How yeah. do you know this isn't the opening stance of a, a kung fu move? You know, yeah. it's it's that sort of thing. And I think, like, it's again, it's not. No, don't do that. Oh my God, retract the arms. No, it's just, it's a conversation. It lasts five seconds, and they just move on. Again, smart people talking about smart things in a smart manner and coming to a smart decision based on the fact that they're smart and can consider the evidence. Sure. This, this movie is a science movie. Like this, this put this movie puts the science in science fiction. Yeah, it really, really does. You know, and I love it. There, there's a lot of contemplation and uh, thought that goes into every action. Yeah, that's one of the things I respect most about Star Trek: The Next Generation. Everyone thinks mm-hmm. things through, and when they don't, yeah. that's when people suffer. Uh, yeah. So here, he goes over the middle of the monolith, and lights start to gather underneath it, which, by the way, has very much to do with. David Bowman's the last thing he's heard to say, my God, it's full of stars. Stars, yeah. Because it's very close to what he saw before he was sucked into the monolith. And then suddenly like these lights gather and there's like this energy tornado on top of the, uh, uh, the monolith and it whips the lander very much like it does to the lander. What the chlorophyll crater did to the probe. Yeah. You know, we see that, you know, Kurnow's very upset that Max is gone. He keeps screaming, Max, Max, Max. Yeah. But this time it's interesting. Max becomes like a, a messenger for the aliens because that fireball is sent home to Earth. Right. Because the very next scene we see is an apartment complex while, where this older woman is sitting at her, her kitchen table watching the news. And it's more news about Honduras. Uh, you know, the president's going to make an announcement tonight. And then we see the Pan Am commercial. Of course, Pan American Airlines went out of business in the late 80s, early 90s. But in 2001, Haywood Floyd took a Pan Am shuttle up to the space station. And oh, okay. A, and then a Pan Am shuttle from the space station to the moon. Hmm. So they kept on with that with the actual branding, which I think is kind of neat. Just like the the, te- the television they're looking at, if you can see the brand, it's Sanyo. I don't think they're oh, yeah, so it is. Brand. Yeah, the, their parent company is Panasonic. Yeah, no, I know Sanyo. But, but I think it's kind of neat. Like, they, they talk about the Sheraton Hotel. Like, that was the neat thing about it is that, with the exception of not using the term NASA instead of using their other one, they used real world brands. It added a sense of um, realism to the film. Right. You know, which I thought was kind of cool. So she's watching TV and the TV goes kind of screwy. And then we see what appears to be like a naked, I mean, just from the shoulders up, David yeah. Bowman. And I think the idea of being naked is that he's presented as a base human with no, no accoutrements, no uniform, no space suit, you know, right. because the last time we saw David Bowman, he was, as you'll see him later in this film, first as a slightly older man with the black clothing. And then later as a very, very old man on his deathbed in a white, what would you call it? Mumu? I don't, I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> Gown? gown cloak whatever a one-piece thing um yep. here he's none of that he's just naked david bowman and he says yep. 
you know, I remember David Bowman and, and all that David Bowman really was is still here with me. And it's wonderful because it's just this moment of human, you know, just a sort of human compassion. Like, you're married again. Yes. Is he a good man? Yes, he is. I'm glad. I love you. It's a beautiful scene. Yeah. And it's, you know, and then we'll see it later. They'll do it again when we learn about his, you know, that his mother had a stroke and she's on a ventilator, but suddenly she sits up in bed and her, her silver hairbrush floats into the air and starts combing her hair. And she has a conversation with someone who isn't there, though we don't get to hear it. And I love that. Yeah. Her, her lips are moving because it's a private conversation between David Bowman and mom who then dies. Yeah. So this is what this is, is the... I think, because this is all open inter into interpretation, this is the the monolith letting David Bowman say goodbye to his family. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that that's a good way to uh, interpret it. I mean, maybe it's just where I'm coming from, but I've always Pause well, while I was watching this film, there there always felt to be a very strong sense of how to put this. I didn't ever feel like the monolith was ex explicitly benevolent. It never felt malicious. It just I felt agree. cold and uncaring. Um, and to me, it, as much as it seems to seed life, it seems just as viable to incorporate all life into itself. Yeah, like when it, you know, it kills Max. They could have just pushed him away, but it kills him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so then how would you interpret the warning that is sent to leave Jupiter orbit is that, would you say that is David Bowman doing it and the monolith allowing it? Or is that a calculated decision by the monolith? Well, if we kill these people right off the bat, they're going to come at us and they're going to be all over Europa. So let's do them a solid. So they'll leave us alone. I or do you think, or do you think it's the monolith itself being legitimately benevolent? I don't feel like there's benevolence there. That is a, that is a, you need to go and do this or you're going to die. I don't well, care either way. Well, why it, would it give a shit? I don't, I don't think that it does give a shit. I think it's just that it's more of an inconvenience. But why? We, we have this plotted out in a course that we want. You weren't expected to be here. Go away or we're going to kill you. It's not, a, it's not a threat. It's just a statement of fact. Okay. That's interesting. It, I hadn't thought about that. that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where I come down on the, the monolith aliens. I get the impression, because remember at the end they say all these worlds are yours except Europa. Right. And to me, I always interpreted that to mean that they're trying in their own way to help humans along, that it's benevolence, but it's a distant benevolence. We don't love you, but we're here to, we're here to move you along the way. And okay. they've chosen this time to do this. Like, why do this now? Maybe it's to stop the impending World War III that's about to happen over Honduras. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is a matter of, it's like, it'd be like seeing a, a baby turtle on the beach and sort of nudging it in the right direction. Yeah. You want it to succeed. You don't necessarily love it, but you don't want to be a dick about it. Like you're just 
that I always sort of, I'm not sure whether that means like, I honestly, I don't know. I think it's, I think they're kind of beyond the idea of benevolence. Like we're ants to these people. Look, look what they can do. They can, they can, they can ignite a gas giant and create a star. Though, as we learned in 2061, apparently not very well because the damn thing burns out. Yeah. Uh, So it's hard to tell, but what we do learn in 3001 is that they don't, they may destroy the discovery when they ignite, um, when they ignite Jupiter, but yeah. Hal exists in some manner. So they've made the effort to scoop up Hal's consciousness as okay. they, as they have also done to Dave Bowman. Right. So yes. I wonder, I wonder if it's, it's not necessarily benevolence as it is a respect for life. I'm not sure. It's hard to tell. It's, I, I guess, I don't know. It, it feels to me as though, the grand design is cultivate life so that it can be reincorporated. I'm not sure if I into the reincorporation thing. My understanding was from 3001, which is about Frank Poole being revived yeah. and floating in space. My yeah. understanding is that the next step in life was meant to be artificial intelligence. And that was okay. sort of the, theme of the book. Again, I've not read the book. This is based on someone who read the book, uh, a dear friend of mine who read it and uh, she wasn't that impressed with it. And they said, eh, he didn't like it. It was, and then said it was about, you know, the next evolution of life is the artificial. Um, okay. But what I do love is that we don't know. The fact is you and I could do the next three hours debating this. And we would, sure. be, we would understand it more, but we'd never truly have an answer. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure Arthur C. Clarke passed away, so we can't ask him. So Pretty sure. Pretty um, sure. I'm sure somewhere out there there's an interview and an article he's done. I almost don't want to know. Yeah. I mean, there's you know. by leaving it, leaving it ambiguous, it really gives a lot more freedom to the to the viewer because like you said it, it could be that they're trying to prevent a war on earth or it mm-hmm. could just be that this is chaos and this just happens to be coinciding at the same time yeah yeah or maybe it's you know we're gonna do okay we weren't gonna do this for a while we're gonna do it now because these assholes are gonna break everything we've we, you know we, we sent the monolith to do originally which was to give yeah. you intelligence who yeah. knows that's the pro that's the beauty of it we don't yeah. know because these guys are way above us. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the next yeah. scene is back on the Alexei Leonov and a conversation between Haywood Floyd and the captain. And mostly it's that she's sort of mourning Max. And he says, you know, yeah, I, I do think it was a bad idea to send him. They have a wonderful conversation about Kentucky whiskey and their children yes, and, and the Derby. And, yeah. I'm not sure what this next conversation is between the three Americans. Well, this is when they reactivate Hal and they start having conversation with him and asking what happened. What do you remember? Where right, did you right. Because that's right. Because it's in the pod bay. Yeah. On and discovery. Chadra even says to everybody else, listen, he understands my voice. Don't yeah. say anything. Don't that's interact right. with him. He's that's just right. a the accents will conf- That's right. The accents will yeah. confuse him. And, they, yeah. and that's where we learn that they, that Haywood Floyd, like he blames Haywood Floyd, but really it was the National Security Agency who went around Haywood Floyd and gave Hal information that he didn't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sure we've done the best job of explaining what the conflict is. I may just let Dr. Chandra do it for us. Wait. Do you know why Hal did what he did? Yes. It wasn't his fault. Whose fault was it? Yours. Mine? Yours. In going through Hal's memory banks, I discovered his original orders. You wrote those orders. Discovery's mission to Jupiter was already in the advanced planning stages when the first small monolith was found on the moon and sent its signal towards Jupiter. By direct presidential order, the existence of that monolith was kept secret. So? 
So as the function of the command crew, Bowman and Poole, was to get Discovery to its destination, it was decided that they should not be informed. The investigative team was trained separately and placed in hibernation before the voyage began. Since Hal was capable of operating Discovery without human assistance, it was decided that he should be programmed to complete the mission autonomously in the event the crew was incapacitated or killed. He was given full knowledge of the true objective and instructed not to reveal anything to Bowman or Poole. He was instructed to lie. What are you talking about? I didn't authorize anyone to tell Hal about the monolith. The directive is NSC 342-2, top secret, January 30, 2001. NSC, National Security Council, the White House. I don't care who it is. The situation was in conflict with the basic purpose of Hal's design, the accurate processing of information without distortion or concealment. He became trapped. The technical term is an H. Mobius loop, which can happen in advanced computers with autonomous goal-seeking programs. The goddamn White House. I don't believe it. I was told to lie by people who find it easy to lie. Hal doesn't know how. So he couldn't function. He became paranoid. But what it comes down to is now we have solved the mystery of Psycho Hal, which is that he was given contradictory instructions. He did his very best to interpret them. He became paranoid, and his end conclusion was kill the crew in order to complete the mission. Yeah, it's um, it's sort of a a question that gets raised with artificial intelligence even today is if you tell an artificial intelligence to stop all spam mail, well, the most logical way to stop all spam mail is to kill everybody sending spam mail. And how do you know who's sending spam mail? Well, it could be anybody, so kill everybody. Yeah, so- yeah, that's a, that's a logical extreme, but yeah, it's it's the Skynet thing, right? Skynet yeah. decides that the great, its greatest enemy is humans. So who knows? But you know what Chandra does does point out is that uh, he's deleted the, uh, Hal's memory, so he doesn't remember killing the crew. He doesn't rem- essentially he's deleted everything before the NSA message, so that yeah he goes back to an earlier time when he was cooperating with the crew and there was no problem. And that's kind of neat. And then the very next scene is actually, we see the, the thing with the mother and the conversation, and then she dies at the end of it. And, and then the next thing is Bowman sending a message. And, and that's kind of neat. But I like how he says, like, you need to tell me who you are. I was David Bowman. Look behind you. Well, hang on. The, did, did we cover the U.S. and Russian press conferences just before that? Oh, right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. So the very next thing is a message comes saying that, what is it? They sunk a Russian ship. Yeah. Uh, they're in a state of war. They've expelled embassies. You must leave the discovery. Yeah. The uh, the wire bridge between the two ships is severed. And then, yeah, it's right. Because we see uh, Chandra in sort of the brain of Hal futzing around and and uh, Kurnow hanging out on one of the corridors and Haywood Floyd sitting on the bridge just sort of chatting with Hal, and that's when the message comes. Right, right. Good yeah, and so he uh, he starts having a quick conversation with Hal, and offers to Hal play chess asks with him, him, yeah, offers to play chess. No, I don't want to play chess. Well, you know what it play. is? He used, he used to play chess with, uh, with, I think it was with Frank Poole he used to play chess with. One of the two. He used to play chess with him. Yeah? Yeah, okay. so I think he's sort of hearkening back. But that's interesting because it suggests he misses his old habits. Right. I mean, it, it does, it lends a lot more to Hal being closer to, cl- closer to human than not, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I like that. So yeah, so he gets this message, you must leave in two days. 
you know, I'm aware you don't have the fuel. You must leave in two days nonetheless. And like I said, it ends with look behind you. And a worse film, certainly a film made today, he'd be like, there'd be like some alien or it'd be like Bowman leaning over the chair. But here he's just yeah. sort of standing there. And it's interesting because he's in his spacesuit, which is what essentially he looks like he did when he left the Discovery for the last time, except right. that he's clearly older. He's got a lot of gray and, and um, wrinkles around his eyes. Because the actor, of course, is almost... 20 years older no i was just i was just sort of pondering like because there's not a good way in the time period to get around that so like how do i mean i suppose obviously makeup is ever and everything is still a thing but like his face is still going to look older and it's going to be very very difficult to hide that in an 80s movie um Um, yeah i wonder if it's meant to show that because of course dave bowman when he enters the monolith sees himself or maybe it's that we see him. I don't quite remember how it plays out. We essentially right. see him as this old man and a much older man, and then yet a much older man. And I wonder if this is uh, this is how Haywood Floyd would have last seen him, because presumably in the telemetry from Discovery would have included pictures. So maybe the last right. picture would have been him in his spacesuit before he got into a pod and headed out to the monolith. But also the recognition that Dave Bowman is older. Right. He has aged beyond. He's aged beyond his years because he's been through some shit. Yeah, it's hard to tell. So he follows him to the pod to to the the docking bay, and I wonder if they just chose it because it was a set they had, or whether it's the representation of that this was the last part of Discovery that Bowman was on. Right, that could be it. Before he got on the pod and headed off, because when he walks in, he's the older man in the black, and then he's the very very old man in the in the gown. That's the term we were looking for. Yes, and then he's the star child, just for a second. Yeah. And essentially, it's this wonderful conversation, and it comes out, well, what's going to happen? Something wonderful. Yeah, and that's that's something wonderful from one perspective. Something mm-hmm. wonderful from the perspective of the monolith. Or the monolith. The, yeah, the monolith. Aliens, yeah. yeah. Um, but, like, I get, does it evoke Hellraiser for me? Like, uh, it's just like... Wonderful destruction, you mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, like something something beautiful is going to happen and then everybody is going to die. Like it yeah. there's no point in time where like him saying something wonderful doesn't feel malicious, doesn't feel scary. Or is it malicious or is it just ominous because you don't know? Yeah, maybe yeah, maybe it's mali- hard to tell, maybe right? ominous is better because malice implies directed animosity. Like Yeah, malice whereas, means I'm going out of my way to hurt you, whereas yeah. They're, I mean, they're providing them with new worlds. I mean, like, these worlds are yours except Europa. The one thing I looked at, because I was curious as I was watching the film, the Earth and the Sun are 150.52 million kilometers away. So let's just say 150 million kilometers away from each other. Yeah. Earth and Jupiter are 738 million kilometers mm-hmm. apart. Mm-hmm. So, first off, Jupiter is much, much smaller than the Sun. Right. It's not going to it's not going to burn nearly as bright. It won't burn nearly as hot. It won't hurt the earth because at first I thought, wow, like wouldn't the solar like what would that do to the earth having all this extra solar wind battering the earth? But it's a much smaller sun. It's way further away. So it's mostly just a bright light in the sky. And so it wouldn't be like if suddenly there were two suns in our solar system and it would just right fuck us over. Sure, I don't. I don't think it would I mean, be like, like that much, but I mean, there's still got to be some kind of effect. I'm sure, like the oh, radiation, no nothing else. And maybe that's mentioned in 2061 in the book. I honestly don't know. Right. 
Well, you know that, and that's the thing is like we're we're spitballing here on the media that we've consumed, and and exactly. as, as always, we've brought this up in the past. There is expansionary media that we have not gotten to see, yeah. so like the original book. Yeah, so, yeah. See, so two thousand and one was they conceived it. Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick conceived it together. Kubrick went off and wrote the script. Arthur C. Clarke went off and wrote the book. And then Arthur C. Clarke carried on and wrote 2010, which was then adapted. Yeah. So 2001, the movie, is not the same as 2001, the book. That's my understanding. Oh, okay. My understanding is that the monolith, the Tycho monolith that in the uh, movie is found on the moon. Yeah. I, I seem to have some recollection that it was found on Saturn. Oh, one, of okay. Saturn one of Saturn's moons. Interesting. Which would suggest a more expansive presence in the solar system for humans than the movie suggests. Yeah, yeah, because honestly, hard to tell. It it seems to me like that, like a trip to Jupiter is as far as they can go. That's pushing it. Like, yeah, it's a big deal for them to do. Like, they can do it, but it's like we don't know. Are they on Mars? There's no suggestion of that. No, there's there's no mention of them being anywhere else. But like, I guess, yeah, yeah. Like like you say, we 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 only have what's in front of us here. Yeah, and I mean, it raises. Raises lots of other questions too, but <laughs> like it, it's it's tough. I'm sure that, as you mentioned earlier, the person who's read all the books and watched all the movies a million different times, you know, they've got they've got a lot more knowledge about this than we do, and we're going to get some get some flack for it. But there's just, we're doing there's our just best. The yeah, there is just the two movies, though. I mean, I would be excited to see a 2061. Absolutely, I'd be um, interested. In it. But uh, maybe I'll read the books. I've never read Arthur C. Clarke. I don't know if I'd even like him. I, I really want to read Ron, uh, Rendezvous with Rama. Uh, which is about a, like a ship called that they, they name Rama that's approaching the earth okay. and, uh, and astronauts are sent out to check it out. Uh, I've heard that's pretty good, but again, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I've ever read anything Arthur C. Clarke did, which figure, you know, I'm a lifelong sci-fi guy. You figure I would have, but somehow he just escaped me. But uh, yeah. Anyway, so we get the message and it's a very cool scene. And the very next thing is Haywood Floyd returns to the Alexei Leonov and they have this conversation and he presents them with this, uh, uh, you know, this idea, we have to leave. I found it interesting that Haywood Floyd refused to tell the captain why. Why wouldn't you just say, David Bowman is communicating with me, which means the monolith is communicating with me. We need to get the hell out of here. I think a lot of that kind of gets chalked up to, it even even says it like, I can't tell you, I, you won't believe me. I wouldn't believe me. Yeah, but... The other option is, I'm just this guy standing here telling you you have to leave. Why the fuck should I listen to you? I'm the captain of this mission. Sure, He's not in charge. She is. I I guess the alternative being is, I'm telling you we got to go. Here's the reason. I saw a dead dude and he talked to me. He became his old man and then he became an even older man and then he became a child in a bubble. Yeah, but he doesn't have to get that detailed. He could just say, you know, the monolith is is communicating with me and I don't understand it. But here's the the message they clearly wanted us to get. It's, you know, it's, I don't know. it, It seemed to me a movie trope. There's no time. There's no time. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, but she has no reason to trust him. Like she doesn't really trust him all that much. They don't really get along all that well, except for a few tender moments. Like when they're talking about Kentucky and their kids, it just, I don't know. It seemed to me, I think maybe it just, it rubbed me the wrong way. Like it seemed, mm-hmm. it seemed an unnecessary movie trope of hurry, hurry, hurry. I don't know why, but whatever. I mean uh, like that, the, the hurry, hurry, hurry kind of comes, comes from Bowman himself, right? Like you need to get gone now. You've got two yeah. days, get, get the hell out of here. And we don't really have a timeline for, well, I guess we do get a timeline because it must take them pretty much exactly two days to get everything set yeah. up and gone. 
Yeah. Because as they're leaving, things start going squirrely. I think that's just the tension of the film. Like, otherwise, you know, yeah, we left. It was totally no tension. And then, you know, six days later, we saw shit blow up. Like, it's, yeah. of course they had to do that. That's just dramatic effect. That's, I mean, sure. Yeah. But like, but either way, they, they make it out at the deadline. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so the, the plan is that they'll link the two vessels up because the Alexei Leonov has a, a docking clamp that can literally grab hold of the discovery. Remember the whole idea of that mission was to rec- was for the Russians to recover discovery on their own. The right. ship was literally built to hijack the discovery. Right. I it was meant to go out and get it. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, the Russians wanted that data. Yeah, of course they did. So the whole idea is that they'll use the, the discovery as a booster rocket. And yeah. then there's the big question is a big debate as to whether Hal will allow this because he'll know he's being lied to. He's been, you know, they spent several weeks preparing him for, a slow burn for, what was it? A 10 month burn back to earth. Yeah. And now like he's that. being told that's all being thrown away and what's going on. And it's, you know, th- this is where Chandra says, you know, whether we are based on carbon or Silicon, we are still each as individuals owed respect. Sure. And, you know, and the others go, well, I'm sorry if this is a choice between him and us, I vote us. I kind of like that because then there's that wonderful, very tender discussion when Chandra's the last guy aboard discovery and he's in his, his, his EVA suit without the helmet and he's talking to Hal. And in the end, Hal understands, like he says, yes, you're going to be destroyed. This is how we survive. Mm-hmm. And Hal says, okay. Thank you for telling me. Yeah. You know, Chandra is crying. It's like, do you want me to stay with you? He says, no, it's better for the mission. If you go, it's, I I would suggest that's the most human conversation in the whole movie. There's nothing scientific about it. He's the most scientific guy of the bunch. He is his headspace is somewhere else. Like he's yeah almost removed. Like he doesn't treat he doesn't he doesn't talk to the others as tenderly or as humanly as he speaks no. to Hal. And this is a very and we saw that with Sal because he speaks to Sal in a very tender way between yeah. two humans. And it's the same here. Like he's prepared to die with his child. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this. Uh, mimics that conversation with Sal in so many different ways. I mean, beyond mm-hmm. the fact that he's being tender and compassionate with his child, he gets will asked I the dream. same. Yeah, he gets asked, "Will I dream?" And he gives the honest answer this time. He yeah. doesn't keep lying. He I says, don't "I don't know." Yeah, Doctor Chandra. Yes. Will I dream? I don't know. And 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 that was yeah, that was neat. Like he's almost. He himself has actually moved further on that that sliding scale from Star Wars at one end and and, and data from Star Trek at the other. He's yeah. almost moved closer to data. He's now he is truly treating Hal as a fully independent individual worthy of respect. Right. And I really like that. So they do the blast off. You know, he's sort of dragged behind the discovery a little bit yeah. uh, because of the the momentum, and he's pulled in to the Alexei Leonov, and that's where we learn that that little kill switch that uh, Haywood ha- Haywood Floyd had Kernow yep. uh, install. Yeah, he was never. <laughs> it was never. It. Yeah, he found it because he knew. He said, "I knew you'd try something like that. It wasn't hard to find." Yeah, um, and so that's interesting. Oh. But it's uh, we we sorry? forgot to mention the uh, the black hole on Jupiter. Oh yeah, that's right. They spot out what what first seems like a shadow on Jupiter, and it gets bigger and bigger. And we realize it's sucking the the clouds in. And when when they, finally everyone's back on the Alexei Leonov, we start to zoom in, and we realize it is monoliths. Yeah, was it millions and millions, and they're multiplying like viri and something like that. I think he says that they're spreading in the same pattern that a virus does. Yeah. Um. But I mean, 
Like, I, I'm not sure what the exact implication here is, whether these monoliths are just very, very dense and they're generating a black hole that's drawing everything in on itself, or what exactly, but... Well, the idea is that they've ignited Jupiter, so I think the idea is that they're going to spread, and they'll be like Tinder. And then one okay. of them will spark, and then they'll ignite, and they'll they'll be sort of the fuel for the fire. Right. If each of, I think, I mean, again, we're not meant to know. Like, no, the, the it's, mon- it's mystery. The, the monolith is a literal black, black box. Yeah. It's black box with no doors on it. But you know what I like about that? They could have any other design they would have chosen would have suggested function. Why does it have arms? Why does it land? Why is it, you know, it's, it's a tripod. Does that mean the aliens have three legs? Why does it, why does it have these sorts of sensors? No, mm-hmm. it's a black nothing. Mm-hmm. You get nothing out of it. It's just a geometrically perfect black thing. It doesn't even, it doesn't even reflect. And I love that. Yeah, if, if nothing else, it's, uh, it's, it's at least evocative of the Vogons from Hitchhiker's Guide. The, of the what? I missed that. The, the Vogons? The Vogons? Okay, I don't know them. Oh, um, they're, they're the, the bureaucratic species who just oh, okay. wipe out planets, and all their ships are just these immense, tall rectangles, and then they just oh, okay. hover over a planet and blip it out of existence. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just like that the, the monolith gives you nothing. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't, there's nothing at all you can get out of the monolith in terms of understanding these aliens. It's a thing that's there. Yeah. And it's just a a presence. And so it's being used here. Many millions of them. One thing that we forgot to mention is that when, uh, after Haywood Floyd convinces the captain to do this crazy ass maneuver, they look out the window and the monolith is gone Mm. because they've been sort of hanging around in orbit just away from the monolith and suddenly it's not there anymore. Well, now we know that it flew off to um, hang out in the atmosphere with millions of its buddies and they ignite Jupiter. Like Jupiter, they at one point, like Kurnow yells, it's shrinking and it does shrink down and then explodes, seems to envelop Discovery, but not before Dave Bowman boards Discovery in some weird way and talks to Hal. Mm. Yeah, because remember, Hal says, "I can't, I can't see you on any of my sensors." And he says, "Yeah, that's not important." But the way the camera works is that first you see him in the uh, the pod bay, right? Or first we see the camera in the pod bay, almost like it's walking, and then down the corridor, and then approaches the bridge and the seat, almost like it's Dave Bowman himself walking, but Hal can't see him. Yeah. That is the impression I got, that it was Bowman walking one last time through the ship. I I guess, just like incorporeally. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because obviously they've got, or I, I shouldn't say they, the monolith aliens have the ability to project themselves in certain fashions. And I suppose it's just a choice as to whether they're projecting themselves corporeally or not. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because remember but, when Dave Bowman cont- uh, uh, contacts... Uh, Hey, would Floyd to sit, to give him the message, get out. Yeah. Remember he asks, well, is it by voice or keyboard? And, and Hal says, I don't know. Well, where's it coming from? I yeah. don't know yeah. who's sending it. I don't know, but he's, but it's so clearly it's like, it's so deep in the circuits that Hal is simply aware, you know, and it's instant. Yeah. His memory says we can't leave. And, and it's just the response is, and immediately has a full response. He's into Hal's circuits in a way that Hal doesn't have to hear the information as a voice talking and then spit it back out because there's no right. way that the response to Haywood Floyd came that fast as a human voice. 
So it's like David Bowman is is interfacing directly with Hal. That's the the interpretation. Sure. I get. Yeah. Yeah. And I I get that. I I feel like it's less less. I don't know. I'm I guess I'm just drawing a weird distinction, but it feels more like a direct transmission from something that Hal just has no idea about, as opposed yeah. to a direct interface. Yeah, it's possible. Again, it's part of the we don't know. Yeah, like it's 100%. It's, the, it's the interface between the Ferrari and the Model T. How is the Model yeah, T ever, yeah. you know, uh, or Jesus, the Ferrari and the little push car, um, you know, Hot Wheels car. It's, it's uh, you know, but what I do like is that that's the third act of compassion from David Bowman. First his wife, then his mom, and now how? We'll be together soon. Yeah. I think that's cool. Yeah. And I maybe it's just maybe it's just where I'm coming from, but the we'll be together soon almost feels more evocative of like <laughs> like a, a less angry Borg. Maybe it's interesting that you view the monolith aliens as that. And I never did, but like clearly they've absorbed in some manner, David Bowman, or they've rebuilt David Bowman and he's wandering around in the monolith. He's part, you know, he's part David Bowman and part something else. That's the point. We don't know. Yeah. I guess my, my imagination runs with it and goes, well, if they've got David Bowman and there's life out there, how many other things have they gotten this absorption from? Or gotten done this absorption yeah. too. Well, maybe it's and just an ambassador for every species. This is how they're communicating with humans. Maybe it the is the way the humans will understand. Yeah, that might be it. Because remember, like we talked about this, a non-Earth biology is going to look nothing like us. It'll be so no. incomprehensibly different. But a human looks human and speaks in a language you understand, and so you can. So maybe it's like an ambassador. Maybe, but. Is it, is it, or is it just the first one? The first, well, then at that point, why not just uh, swarm Earth with monoliths and just take them all? Sure. I mean, like, in, in theory, yeah, it could just be that, or they could be waiting. Are they're, yeah. They cultivate life. You mm-hmm. don't harvest a crop before it's done. Yeah, it's possible. Again, we, we run into two problems. One, they clearly don't want us to know in the movie. And two, we haven't read the books. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's tough. We... And this is this is kind of the nice thing about this is you and I can both come at this from very very separate viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, but I and, I do and we we could both be right or we could both be totally wrong. Exactly. There's I'm sure that there's something else entirely that's you know deep in the background lore that uh, you know wasn't even originally put in by Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, it's it's hard to tell. So there is a message that Hal is asked by Bowman to transmit. Um, yes. Can you. Can you pull up the message? I probably can't catch it. Yeah, uh, give me so. half a sec here. All these worlds are yours except Europa. Attempt no landing there. Mm-hmm. Use them together. Use them in peace. So that's the me- that's the only direct message to humanity other than, and maybe that's from Dave, but I was about to say it's the only message we get directly from the aliens, but we don't know that. We don't know if it's being, if, if everything we're getting is through Bowman. Right. We can't be 100% sure. We. I mean, and- clearly the message comes originally from them yeah but we don't know whether that transmission is the aliens telling how or whether it's david passing on a message in english maybe i'm i'm still like because even when he's in even when the aliens are interacting with david bowman's wife mm-hmm. as i remember david bowman 
I am everything that he was. Yeah, but that so I I feel like this is more. Yeah, I I interpret this as to being from that greater consciousness. This is a message from them saying, "Hey, listen, go use all the other crap. We don't care. We're just focusing on Europa. Don't land here. This is our thing." Yeah. Well, I mean, even when he don't step in my rice paddy. Yeah, like even when David Bowman says, I mean, he says it to his wife. Is that you? I'm not sure. I remember Dave Bowman. And everything about him. He was dead. All Dave Bowman really was is still a part of me. So there right. is a greater something in there. There is David Bowman plus Android? David Bowman plus Alien? Did they just take David Bowman's brain and put it in a new body and the additions, you know what I mean? Like we don't know. Um, right. Because when he says all that David Bowman ever was is a part of me. Yeah. <clears throat> well, clearly it's not just a matter of a data dump. I have his memories. Yeah. He, because he takes the, he makes a point of showing caring and intimacy, int- intimacy towards David Bowman's wife, David Bowman's right. mom and David Bowman's work colleague, Hal. Yeah, that suggests that David Bowman isn't just a list of memories in David Bowman Plus. Right. It's David Bowman and another consciousness or or David Bowman evolved. Maybe that's the way to put it. It's David Bowman evolved. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I I see what you're getting at. Like Um, you're always going to be Adam. Yeah. And 10 years from now, you'll be Adam with 10 more years of experience. Uh, Yeah. No, I I see where you're coming from. Um, Yeah. To me, it feels like like you've got this mass consciousness of which David Bowman is a part, mm-hmm. and they are. See, it seems to I, me like you you think that all of the aliens are like the Borg, like it's one, like all the like all the aliens in the uh, monolith are one consciousness. Is that is that correct? I mean, yeah, more or less. Like I, I don't the Borg? see. Yeah, more or less. Like I don't see a reason to distinguish them because all we've seen them do is absorb you don't see two of them having conversations you don't see we don't see any of them uh, at all. a that's distinction the right that's the point we never see them at well all. but that's that's just it all we see them do is absorb david bowman and, and then the later on we, absorb hal yeah and here's the thing we don't we, we, we keep saying we we have no idea we have no idea sure. if there are aliens inside the monolith or is it one guy per monolith or is the sure. monolith an autonomous mechanism that's been sent out into the universe with instructions yeah is it a probe yeah no absolutely we don't know and that that's what i love about this so it it sort of ends with a view (laughs) first from the white house and then from the kremlin and then from cairo actually of the sun low in the sky and then higher in the sky the jupiter sun and a message from oh we also get a view from london that's right we do that's right and then you know essentially uh, Haywood saying, you know, dear son, I'm on my way home. You will grow up in a world with two sons. Your children will never know the dark. It's a nice message yeah. at the end. And then we see Europa. We see lightning flash. So it's clear there's like rapid evolution going on. And then suddenly Europa isn't icy anymore. It's, I think it's meant to be like a di- like a primordial forest, like the dinosaurs would have walked through. Yeah. And then at the edge of the lake is and the monolith. monolith. And then we get yeah. the music again and it's out. So yeah. What do you think? 
it's a good movie. I, I think that there's a lot of people that would watch it who really would enjoy it because it's, yeah. uh, it's much more of a thinker. It is <laughs> um, absolutely a thinker. There's a lot of really great things to go into and analyze. And you know what? I bet that it's been gone over with a fine tooth comb a million times. You can probably find oh, yeah. far better, you know, um, uh, breakdowns of this than we could ever, ever do ourselves. But yeah. I think that it's it's great to go into with an open mind, not a movie to worry about the action in, but just to, to think about and reflect on and ask the question of why. Yeah, I would agree. It's um, But this is a movie you don't watch when you're just looking for a popcorn flick. This is a movie no. you watch when you want to engage your mind. Yeah. I'm honestly not sure whether I would recommend watching 2001 first or watching this first. I guess it depends on... I guess there's more work to be done because I think you're going to watch 2001 and you're going to want to watch this again. Yeah, probably. So there's almost more work to be done. Like you almost want to go back and say, okay, now let me rewatch 2010 when I know it's not a mystery. Now I know the whole story. Yeah. Like I'm going to watch 2001 probably tonight mm-hmm. or tomorrow just because I haven't seen it in a long time and I want to see it. But I've been back and forth over these two movies, you know, over decades so I'm right. not sure whether I would recommend starting with 2010 and going back to 2001 and then 2010 again, or just start at the beginning and work your way through two of them. I guess it's how much of an inquiry do you want to turn this viewing experience into? Yeah, I, I, I think that for most people, I would just I would tell them to go and, especially modern moviegoers or people who are not super critical and analytical of cinematography. Yeah. Like I would say, hey, go and watch 2001, then watch 2010. Yeah. You're you're gonna lose out on a little bit of a very specific niche experience. Yes, but that was not an intended the specific one niche experience that it was originally designed in mind. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't originally designed to be watched that way. So you're not really losing out on anything. I think you know you know what the experience I have is in a kid from the 80s who came across a film on Super Channel pay TV. Yeah, and and went through it that way. Yep. the proper cinematic experience, of course, is to watch 2001 first. And by right. the way, don't watch that on your phone. Go watch that on the big screen. Um, yeah. Quite the experience. So yeah, so I guess it comes down to, do you want Farron's 80s experience or do you want the proper cinematic experience? And I'm going to leave that up to our viewers. But um, yeah. yeah, so I love that we are two hours and 33 minutes and 36, 37, 38 seconds into this recording. And we still have come to no conclusions about the major themes or the aliens. And you know what? I think that's awesome. Yeah. I agree. You know, I think that's fabulous. And I think we should I just think, leave it there. I, I totally agree. I think that that's uh, a great place to leave it because this is a movie that's so open to interpretation. And uh, you can't, I don't think that two people are going to come out of this with the exact same feeling. Yeah. Yeah, this is a this is like a date night movie if you and your date are like both super smart. Yeah. And if you're if you're willing to have a long discussion about it afterwards. Yeah. Well, you know what? People have got a lot of time on their hands these days. So That's true. That's very true. You know, it would be the sort of thing that, you know, one night watch 2001, on the next night watch 2000 or, you know, rehash it out the next day, then watch 2010 that night and hash it out the next day. So I have given you like, you know, 3 days of activity to do at home. You're welcome, audience. You're yeah, welcome. you're welcome. Yeah, we don't say we don't help you. So exactly. I think we'll leave it there. Uh, again, to our audience, please stay home, stay safe, listen to you know your your medical authorities. Don't drink bleach uh, 
or inject it into your body, please don't jam a UV flashlight up your ass. Please don't do that either. Okay, so we'll leave this be, and um, and there it is. And there it is. Thank you, everybody. We love you. Be safe. Take care. 